everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host, John Alba, every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight-up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now and listen at adfreeshows.com. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. Howdy, folks. Double J here. That's right. That's J-E-double-F-J-A-double-R-E-double-T. And you know me, me, that D to the O to the double G, the road dog Jesse James together once again with that double J. J Jeff, what are we going to be doing? Oh, folks, the Oh You Didn't Know podcast and the My World podcast are getting together again. That's right. The band is back together and we're going on tour. The Ain't We Great Tour 2022. Oh, Vegas, the Nerd Bar, Sunday, May 29th. Oh. VIP doors at 11. Show starts at 2. We're going to have a swag bag. You know what a swag bag is? I don't even know, but I'm you know what You had me at hello. <laughs> Folks, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to tell stories, candidly, that we'll never, ever tell on the podcast. Come on out. We'll call it a little pregame before the pay-per-view. The double or nothing pay-per-view. You talk about a weekend of doubles. Double J. The real double J. Double or nothing. Come party with us first. And if you ain't down with that, I got three words for you. Buy the tickets. Oh, no. We great. Head to DoubleJLive.com or RoadDogLive.com for more information and tickets. That's DoubleJLive.com or RoadDog.com with two G's for tickets. Welcome to Something to Wrestle With. Something to Wrestle With. Brits. Brits. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. And, and, and was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shock him. You, Bruce. I love Good night. Yeah. So good. Yeah. 
Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? You know, dog, just another day in the neighborhood. Another bone. We're excited to be with you. Of course, we know last week you uh, had some family stuff. We're back in the saddle, and we're bringing you what we were supposed to bring you last week in your house for. And uh, originally scheduled today was Taboo Tuesday, 2005. We'll try to get to that one very, very soon. But I thought that today we should go back in time and revisit 1995 in your house for the great white North. It was a pay-per-view on October 22nd, back in 95 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. That's the Winnipeg arena. You idiot. 10,339 fans were in attendance. About 9,000 were reported as being paid fans. The gate is $127,976. That's the best gate for an in-your-house show to date. Uh, is this more based on the, you know, the idea that it's still a, a rather early incarnation of in-your-house or more because the fans in Canada are hot, 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 Bruce? Well, shit, I, th- I think that the fans of Canada have always been pretty fucking hot, and this was just during a time we hadn't been in Canada for a pay-per-view and for television, uh, in particular, just due to the high cost of doing business, going across the border, back and forth with visas and all that shit. But, you know, Canada was uh, a little different set of, you know, what the fuck am I trying to say? I was going to say set of pace, but just a little different pace at that time. Okay. I'm tongue tied already. I like it. You're not hot at me about that. Are you? Yeah. I'm hot at you. Well, what did I do now? You showed up. Oh yeah. Uh, so here's the deal. This is, uh, I think the first pay-per-view event from Canada since like WrestleMania six in 1990. So more than five years since old Canada had a pay-per-view, they were probably starved for a little special WWF action. It's also the fourth in your house event of the year. The observer would report that there was a huge local media push leading up to the event that has to help Uh, 95. We're not exactly setting the houses on fire, Uh, but a huge local media push. Is that probably because you guys had a good local promoter? Well, you know, it was more along the lines of Carl DeMarco and Carl DeMarco approached, which don't take this the wrong way because I'm not knocking it, but Carl promotes approached every event as if it were WrestleMania. So no matter what the event, whether it was a live event, a pay-per-view, a television taping, Carl wanted to have press conferences. Carl wanted to to have talent in and out of the market on the way there, as much press as he could possibly generate from everything. And again, it, it became kind of a pain in the ass because you were doing this for markets that wouldn't bring the return that, say, in New York or uh, Dallas or uh, L.A. or Chicago would do. But yet we were pouring all of this into Canada to build Canada up a little bit more. And it was asking an awful lot of the talent. It was asking an awful lot of everyone. But again, to the promoter's point of view, I think every 
event should be a WrestleMania promotion and you should put everything that you can into it. Just sometimes it's hard when you're promoting every other day of the week as well. Let's talk about some, uh, rumor and innuendo. There was disputed information about how many buys this pay-per-view did at the time. The WWF allegedly told the observer it did around 0.8 or 200,000 buys a number that would be almost as high as SummerSlam, which that year did 205,000 buys sources at viewers choice and WCW both told Dave it was between 0.35 and 0.4. That's barely a hundred thousand buys. And that number is also in line with in your house five, which we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode. Meltzer would say if the WWF figures are accurate, then in your house was a success financially. And the in your house series is comfortably holding its own using the other figures as mentioned last week, the most recent show's performance was an outright disaster. I know you normally take great issue with any time I start a sentence by Dave Meltzer wrote, but you would eventually do away with this two hour reduced price pay-per-view concept, bump it back up and, uh, add the other third hour at the full price. So. Clearly something wasn't working. Uh, do you remember financially? Was this a huge success or just sort of there? I couldn't tell you one way or another, but I'm sure if Dave Meltzer reported it, that it is probably incorrect. Um, again, I, I don't have the goddamn numbers in front of me. I have no idea what the hell it did, but I can pretty much guarantee you based on the track record of the observer and of its editor in chief, I would probably say that it was much closer to incorrect than being anywhere close to the truth. Meltzer would say, uh, the WWF in your house series has to be reevaluated. The idea that lowering the price would bring a new audience or for that matter, just sustain the old audience for shortened and less hyped shows has now proven to be a fallacy. Not every idea is a winner and maybe it was worth investigating. But each in your house pay-per-view has seen the audience steadily decrease to record lows. WCW going to monthly shows, all full price and pushing as equal events. Haven't seen this numbers decrease nearly as far. Although WCW's two advantages are it didn't have as much of a distance to fall. And Hulk Hogan's name value means more to the casual audience than everyone else may be put together. It appears that it doubled the price, meaning WCW changed to 2795 for Halloween Havoc that WCW will have far more buys for its most recent show. A lot to unpack here. There is certainly the discussion of perceived value that if something is expensive, it's valuable. And if something is uh, free, it's worthless. Um, was there a concern early on that maybe we need to abandon the in your house concept or did Vince just want to go full steam ahead and hadn't quite yet made the decision after four. Well, I think that there was the problem of perception and and that comes with when you're looking at the value of something and we were giving them two hours. Um, sometimes the shows were better than our major pay-per-views, but again, to the average audience, you're getting an hour less of content and you're paying less. So just by definition, when you look at the monthly pay-per-views, of the competitor, in this case, WCW, where they were still doing three hour shows. They were still doing it at a higher price point that in looking at ours, it's like, well, then this must be less than, 
based on the price point and based on the length of the event. Um, we didn't think initially that the audience was going to be there monthly. We, we didn't think that they would pay full price for a monthly pay-per-view. We were proven wrong and changed eventually from the in-your-house format to, hey, if we're going to go monthly, go with major pay-per-views monthly. It doesn't cost any more to produce three hours than it does to produce two hours. And the return is going to be greater. Obviously, the same number of buys at $27 is better than the same number of buys at 19 So, you know, yeah, we were evaluating everything along the way. Let me ask, and I hate to be silly, but I can't help but ask. Do you think in, in your house three with diesel and Sean's win, where they won the tag titles, then it was overturned the next night on raw. Do you think perhaps that hurt the, in your house series or specifically this event? The idea being, if you tune in to see a major happening, a major show, and then they just undo it the next night on raw to use an old school phrase, does that sort of kill the town a little bit? I don't know if it. Yeah. I don't know if it does, but yeah, but at the same time, yeah, it does. Um, so that's both sides right there. Uh, it, in general, I think that the in your houses kind of became the, the live event to, to draw the next live event. I'll use Houston, Texas as an example back in the day when it was a weekly territory and you, you always use the event before to promote to your next event. Well, in this case, we were using the in your house as almost to get to TV and get to the next in your house before you got to the big one. So it was, I think it was just, uh, it was a perception thing more than anything. We're a month away uh, from uh, WCW trying a battle royal type gimmick. It's going to be called World War Three. There you go, real tight on that. But I do think it's worth mentioning that there was some speculation that perhaps WCW running that in November could hurt the Royal Rumble pay-per-view in January. And of course we know, well, World War III is going to suck as a concept. Royal Rumble, however, is going to maintain its status as being one of the top shows of the year. But when you hear, wait a minute, they're going to do multiple rings and way more guys than, than we have perhaps as an attraction that could hurt us. Does that even cross your mind? Or did you think that at this point, the Royal rumble was so well established that what nobody touching that. I don't think that the Royal rumble concept was in jeopardy at all. And I don't think anyone really gave that a second thought. Um, I've always been a big fan of the two ring battle Royal. I've always been a fan of the two ring six man tag team matches and being able to utilize two rings to your advantage, um, and make it a special event. So I was intrigued. I'll admit on the three ring circus, which is what it eventually turned into of of WCW. And that's the one that was just fucking horrible with, with like 800 people in it and everything. Yeah. A ton of people hard to watch. I mean, it's just hard to figure out, you know, what action to call and all that. That's one of those that you look at and you kind of say, well, as a spectacle, I, I got to see what the hell it's going to be. Um, however, is is the product at the end of the day is kind of like, oh fuck, I'm sorry, I looked because it was it was not good. But compared it to the Rumble, 
No, there was never any, oh, my God, they're going to do this 800-man, three-ring battle royal thing, and people are going to want that more than the Rumble. The Rumble was a concept, and I think it was safe. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Shoe can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life, and when you feel confident, you're at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, the process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. BlueChew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And guys, I've heard the lady say there's nothing sexier than confidence. Well, BlueChew can help give you that confidence you need where it counts. And if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew for free when you use our promo code WRESTLE at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring today's podcast. We've talked about this a lot before in our Shawn Michaels episode. So check it out in something to but I do want to briefly mention that we've got some major news as we head into this show, the famous or rather infamous incident involving Shawn Michaels being beaten up outside of a Syracuse club happened not too far before this. It was Friday, October 13th. Shawn Michaels is hanging out with uh, Davy boy Smith and uh, the one, two, three kid. They're at a club having a little night out on the town and they're on their way out and different reports would indicate that Michaels may or may not have flirted with someone inside that perhaps he shouldn't have. And, uh, I guess it's pretty well established from everyone who was in the conversation that he had maybe been overserved, maybe a little a little too tipsy. And in the police report, apparently largely derived from Waltman. The men who instigated the incident were yelling insults at the driver of the car, Donna Jones, and not at Shawn Michaels. The police report stated that Michaels was in the front seat, but was intoxicated and passed out and actually asleep when he's pulled out of the car and pummeled. He effectively had no chance to defend himself. And the police report stated that Sean would suffer a laceration on the right eyelid and right below the cheek, two black eyes swelling and of course blood coming from the ears and the right eye Oof, pretty bad deal and it stated that there were three people in the back seat of this two-door car sean waltman davy boy smith and a third person named robert jones with davy boy in the middle between the two which because of his size and it being a two-door car uh, probably compounded the time that it took for him to get out of the car and try to help his pal sean michaels 
And the police reported at the time there were 10 assailants, not nine. And said the fight was ultimately broken up by the driver of that vehicle, Donna Jones. It was apparently the girlfriend of a bouncer at the club 37 in the Ponderosa Plaza in Syracuse, all of which where this was taking place in front of. And, uh, she ran into the club and two bouncers came out and the perpetrators escaped. And wouldn't you know it, two white Ford Broncos. Uh, one of the Broncos turned around and attempted to run over one of the bouncers. And the police report stated that nothing about the perpetrators being Marines or servicemen, although the entire group had the old short crew cut style haircuts. Well, we've talked about this a lot. It's certainly been discussed a lot. You guys are going to turn it into an angle and we'll talk about that momentarily, but what's the word you remember hearing when you first get the report that one of your biggest stars, sort of the next big thing, and maybe the occasional pain in your ass at quite the night here in Syracuse. Well, I got the call later that night, um, at home. So we were made aware of it. Um, the wee hours of the morning and no one really knew what condition that Sean was in at that point, other than he'd had the hell beat out of him and was in a local hospital. So anything more than that, we just didn't, didn't really know, didn't know how bad his head injuries were or anything else. So it was Jim Myers, I believe, uh, George animal steel, who was the, agent on record that was there that night that I believe is the one that went to the hospital to try and find out what the hell happened. But you know, there, there've been so many different stories and so many different versions of what actually took place and the people that were involved in it. I dare say weren't in any condition to really remember what the hell actually took place. So your guess is probably as good as mine as to what really happened that night. And and I think that from all the different versions, somewhere in the middle lies the truth, but all we really know for sure is at the end of the day, Sean had the living shit kicked out of him, had a bad concussion and uh, a lot of injuries coming out of it and fucked up a lot of shit. Was there any heat on, uh, Sean or Davey on the, uh, Waltman or Davey on the other side of this? I think there was more than anything, a, an awareness, like what the fuck are you doing? Uh, being that messed up and going out and the boys look after the boys. So it was, where the hell were you? You know, what happened and don't go out and get so screwed up that you don't remember what the hell happened. So it was uh, an opportunity for a, a lesson to be learned, hopefully from some people and don't be stupid more than anything. We should mention the next year at the slammies, Brent Hart couldn't help himself. And he made a comment about the quote unquote, nine cheerleaders who beat up Sean in Syracuse. And he sort of challenged the authenticity of the incident. Uh, there's lots of conspiracy theories in wrestling. And certainly in this era, a lot of people had already decided they didn't like Shawn Michaels. And, uh, some of that includes people who wrote newsletters, but was there ever any doubt as to whether or not this was legitimate when you've got a couple of witnesses there? Well, not only a couple of witnesses, but you're checked into a hospital with yeah. your eyes swollen shut and, and concussions and unconscious and just, 
look, if it were a work, it was a hell of a work. Oh, I'm not insinuating. It was a work I mean, at all. It's just, it feels, it feels unnecessary that people, oh, it was nine cheerleaders and, oh, he must not have wanted to drop a belt or it's like, uh, did you see him? Uh, it, it's not exactly like he made that up. And we should mention that midweek, uh, Sean Michael sees a neurosurgeon who advises him against taking the trip to Winnipeg and strongly advises against him wrestling. And Meltzer would be critical of this and saying that perhaps a announce an announcement should have been made prior to the pay-per-view and they should have gotten in front of this. Do you agree in hindsight? Maybe it could have been handled a little better than ultimately what you guys wound up doing at the pay-per-view. I think if we had actually had, you know, things set up differently as far as doctors seeing Sean and being able to get to Sean and make that determination, it was one of those where from our vantage point, we hadn't seen Sean. We hadn't talked to Sean and and you're hearing a lot of this and a lot of that. So you, if it's that bad, you want him to be checked out by doctors and to know exactly what the hell the extent of the damages are. So I think that there was some doubt and probably some hope that maybe it's not as serious as we think. And I think you hang on to that glimmer of hope at times, um, oftentimes too often that you, you get bit and this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. This is one of those situations where we got bit. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, Sean Michaels appearance on the show in a little bit, but we should mention this whole incident was acknowledged on Monday nitro, uh, with one of, uh, main jeans, uh, 900 line come ons where he said a WWF star came out on the short end of a fight with a fan, which is, uh, not exactly what happened. It's uh, do you just look at that when you hear that they're, they're poking fun at this and think, ah, oh, this is just them being quarter hot about the whole billionaire, Ted, nacho man and huckster shit. I think it's a combination of all the above. And I just thought, I always thought that those 900 numbers were usually in poor taste anyway. And it's, it's just like the headlines that you read today for the dirt sheets and to try it's, it's clickbait and it was dial bait, I guess back then, but not a big fan of it. Yeah. It's, you know, less than ideal. Did you, did you ever dial the 900 number and, and get mean jeans uh, tip or JR's boy, you want to really ask me a question we've never talked about before, but I, I had a little bit of a no, scam. Man, that's why I asked you the question. I had a scammer hookup. I had a, a, a back dial, a backdoor number to call. And I got to hear the shit every day and didn't pay a dollar. Back in 1995. Well, 97, 97. I could but get the did W you ever call it before you had the hookup. No, I had to get my parents permission. I'm not an asshole. Okay. Well, how old were you then in 95? Yeah. 14. Oh, okay. I was also not watching wrestling. So, but at 16, you had a hookup. Yes. Well, that's just fucked up, Connie. Once I learned to drive, I just drove around town until I found somebody. He <laughs> 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 had somebody giving out uh, codes on hey, the corner. Hey, hey, little boy. You got, you got that WCW holler. What's main Gene saying today? Hey. 
Yeah, uh, I, look, man, I wasn't. I didn't like ours. Uh, I just thought that it was kind of stemming from that dirt sheet world and that that dirt world. Um, I always loved the National Enquirer because of the dirt, um, but I knew that it was dirt. That ninety nine percent of it was bullshit. But you, you know, he kind of went there, and so I understood the attraction to it. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, good Lord, man. Um, it was all just a scam to get you to, to pay that $2 a minute. Oh, it's 99 uh, cents a minute. God damn it. At one nine hundred nine oh nine ninety nine hundred. 9900 Okay. Anyway, let's talk ours? about No, that was mean. Je- oh, scheme jeans. Okay. His was way better than yours. No, it wasn't. Oh yeah. Ours was truthful. Sure. It was, let's talk about the, the rough week Sean Michaels had. So we know he gets the hell beat out of him on October 13th, October 5th. He's at an afternoon charity show at Madison square garden. And Sean Michaels was allegedly confronted by the blue brothers in the dressing room. According to the story, Don Harris put a chair against the dressing room door to keep anyone from coming in. And Ron Harris snatched Michaels by the throat and held him against the wall or shoved him into the wall, depending on who you believe. Michaels had a scare thrown into him. It wasn't roughed up or hurt to the point he missed any dates, but the blue brothers final night with the promotion was four days later. So no disciplinary actions taken, but there's a lot of rumor and innuendo as to what went down here and what created this incident. But most people just say, well, personal disagreements. And that's not exactly a stretch. When you think about the heat seeking missile that Shawn Michaels was in this era. Do you remember the blue brothers, Ron and Don wanting to beat the hell out of Sean? Yeah. I don't think they were alone. I think that there were probably a lot of guys that may have wanted to beat the hell out of Sean during this time period in his career. Um, the blues brothers, big guys, tough guys, great guys. Uh, actually, I mean, super nice guys and the, yeah, sidebar i just the, they were two guys that i kind of looked at and went shit they're they should have done so much more in the business and that's yeah. one of those situations of of that it factor that you couldn't put your finger on because they were big they were nasty had a great look and they weren't bad workers right so it, it just was one of those and two nicer guys you couldn't find. So that was always a puzzle in, in some ways, but look, I heard the same rumors. The only people that know what actually happened, if it, if anything did at all, it was going to be Ron and Don and Sean, Ron, Don and Sean. It sounds like a fucking, uh, sixties hip hop song. Yeah. They, they walk into a bar. Yeah. Only one gets drug out by nine Marines. <laughs> um. <laughs> So as you're listening to this tomorrow, I'm headed out of town with my family. It's spring break here in Alabama and I am pumped. I'm ready for a break. I'm ready for some rest and relaxation, but oh yeah, I got to pack one extra bag this time. You see last spring break, I didn't know anything about chili sleep, but I do this year and I'm fired up, buddy. This has been an absolute game changer in my life. I actually travel with a chili sleep now. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. What is that real? Yes. I've got one on my bed right now. Uh, it's cold on my side, a little warmer on Megan's side because she can control her temperature on her side too. 
Now me, I have to travel with it. I don't want to go down there and be in like a dream vacation and I'm on the beach and it's awesome, but I'm tossing and turning and not comfortable. No, no. I want to get the best sleep of my life. And to do that, I need chili sleep. You see, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering your core body temperature. And I got to be honest, I've known that for years. I would crank down the AC to make sure that it was cold in my house when I went to bed. Eric Bischoff visited a few years ago and said it was so cold you could hang meat in here at night. But I knew I slept better when it was cold. Well, it turns out I was right. Temperature-controlled sleep repairs your muscles after a hard day's work, and it improves your cognitive function so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And hey, man, let's just be straight. I'm not a bodybuilder. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to be productive during the day. I want to be at my best during the day. I want to go win the day. And if you're a salesperson or maybe you're not, but you just know that your performance matters during the day, buddy, chili sleep is for you. Chili sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions. They can help you improve your entire well-being, And I really mean that I feel better than ever right now. And I give 100% of the credit to that, to chili sleep. You see, chili sleep makes the Uller. That's what I have. And the cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro power, temperature controlled mattress toppers. These dudes fit over your existing mattress and that gives you your ideal sleep temperature. Like I said earlier, I like mine a little cooler than my wife. So she doesn't have to freeze to death. I don't have to crank down the AC. See, that's what I was doing before. Now, when I crank down the AC, man, my closets are cold. My kitchen's cold. My laundry room's cold. My dining room's cold. I don't need any of that. I need my bed to be cold. And now it is, but Megan, she wants it a little warmer on her side. I get that. So she adjusts her side. How about that? These luxury mattress pads, keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold, these sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. But check this out. You get an app on your phone that you download, you sync it up to your unit and it works like a remote control. I'm not kidding. I can actually raise or lower the temperature on demand whenever I want. I can even automate it to where it starts getting cool at a certain type at night, certain time at night. And then it warms me up to wake me up. You can set a schedule like that. You can just set it and forget it. Here's my question for you. Can you imagine waking up and not feeling tired? Chili sleep can make that happen. And by the way, they also make the chili blanket. It's the only weighted blanket that can be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat free sleep. Guys, I believe in this so well that I bought another one and I'm carrying it with me on vacation. I, it's almost like a, a credit card back in the day. I won't leave home without it. Well, I won't travel without it. Seriously. We went to the woods for the super bowl. I took chili sleep. Now we're headed for spring break. I'm taking chili sleep. If I'm sleeping there, I'm using chili sleep. I just feel better. I feel more productive and I've tried it without it, man. I don't want to go back. I was miserable the next day. I felt like I had like that late two afternoon uh, after lunch crash. I never feel that way when I have chili sleep. And you know what else? I'm dreaming like vivid, colorful dreams. And buddy, if it sounds like I'm selling this hard, you should try being my friends. I've got my parents. This Casio kids using it. Our gimmick attorneys using it. Scott, our hotel guys using it. Everyone I know hears me talk ad nauseum about chili sleep because I believe in it and I believe that you'll love it. So head on over to chilisleep.com forward slash Russell to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system. Now this is available exclusively for something to wrestle with listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili C H I L I sleep.com slash wrestle 
to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that Chili Sleep's been a long-time advertiser, but I want to mention, this is important, this is the best offer they've ever had. 30% off right now. Just go look at it. It costs nothing to look, but I had everybody in my life take a look, and 100% of them absolutely love it. You will too. ChiliSleep.com forward slash wrestle. I'm more productive. I feel better, and it's all thanks to Chili Sleep. Go hook it up right now. ChiliSleep.com forward slash wrestle. Uh, Sean's not the only one who's going to suffer some injuries during this era. The company receives word that the undertaker has now suffered a broken orbital bone, which is the bone that holds your eye in your eye socket. Uh, several days earlier, he's going to be out of action for at least one month. He will definitely miss the October 22nd show in Winnipeg where his match was, uh, supposed to be the main event against King Mabel, or at least the semi main event. And we know when he shows back up, he's got an interesting looking mask on. And, uh, apparently the injury happened on October 7th in Providence, Rhode Island, working against, well, who else? Mabel. Apparently Mabel went to throw a clothesline, but undertaker wasn't close enough to him and his fist cracked undertaker in the eye and not realizing the severity of the injury. Wouldn't you know it? Undertaker continues to work scheduled matches against Isaac Yankum the next three dates before the pain becomes unbearable. And he finally has to have his face examined and, uh, it's uh, less than ideal. He's going to have to have surgery. Of course, late in the week, the WWF is going to create a storyline around the incident, claiming the injury was from a beating suffered at the hands of Mabel and Yokozuna during a six man tag that aired on October 9th on raw. And on then on the October 16th raw, it's announced that Yokozuna is going to replace the undertaker as Mabel's opponent on the pay-per-view. This is not exactly uncommon to hear that Mabel hurt somebody. There's a pretty famous story that we've talked about before with Kevin Nash working with Mabel and a back injury where he felt like Mabel didn't take care of him, but now you're hurting, you know, the, the godfather of the locker room, the guy who holds wrestler court, the most respected man. And you legit broke his fucking face. What do you remember about undertaker's injury here? Was there any heat on Mabel? It was Mabel already starting to earn a reputation. What can you tell us? Well, Mabel had definitely earned the reputation. And then first, you know, it, it is kind of difficult to injure the undertaker because he's a war horse that he's that ever ready battery bunny that just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going energizer. But yeah, so that's same. Okay. Thing. And our energizer, I like ever ready, but it's energizer. Well, I, I'm going to start texting you. Are you ever ready to tape? That's that. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was ready earlier today than you bullshit texted you this okay. morning. You didn't respond. I told you, wait, we should go ahead and now we're a few minutes into the show. We probably should have did this right at the top of the show. You and I both individually thought the world of Tracy Smothers. One of my all time favorite wrestlers to watch. I was so entertained by him. I still think his match, uh, teaming with the, with Armstrong as the wild-eyed Southern boys against the midnight express, great American bash 90 is one of the all-time greatest shows. One of the all-time greatest matches. The motherfucker wrestled a bear. He worked with y'all as Freddie Joe Floyd. He entertained us all in ECW dancing around, pretending to be Italian from Nashville, Italy, just a hell of a guy. 
we had the pleasure of hanging out with him here in Huntsville last year, myself and Tony Schiavone for one of our Patreon get togethers. It just, it feels like it's way, way too soon. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody who ever worked with him or met him say anything other than what a great guy Tracy Smothers was. Yeah, it's way too soon, man. Tracy was 58 years old and a super nice guy that I've known God, I knew Tracy all the way back to mid South days and just, you know, he, he lost the battle to cancer, um, tough son of a bitch. And I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, may he rest in peace. I've had a, uh, As you know, I've had just kind of a fucked up last two weeks with, with, uh, a lot different, a lot, a lot going on, uh, personally. And it just, when you hear that and it just puts things in perspective for you a little bit because he's one year older than I am and in that quick and, and he's gone and I feel like I just saw him. And it was over a year ago uh, at, at one of these conventions. And I remember sitting with him at a, at a show that uh, Gary Dameron had. And Tracy and I sat there and watched the whole show. And the enthusiasm that Tracy had for the entire show from start to finish and talked to every single guy and had a comment on everything, but out of love and out of just sheer enjoyment. Um, Tracy was a great guy. He's going to be missed. And, you know, it's, it's just really a shame and cancers, you know, for those of you out there, if you can help, um, that's one out of everything. That's the only thing that, that I really, I really hate and, and fight and just, uh, cancer sucks and Tracy's going to be missed. And, and I'm going to, I'm just kind of at a loss for words. Really. He was uh, apparently diagnosed with lymphoma on November 14th of last year. And less than a year later, he was gone. And I think all of us just assumed he was going to kick out. And, uh, unfortunately it didn't happen, but man, what a legacy he's going to leave behind. I hope everybody listening to this will go seek out some Tracy smother stuff and I hope you see some of his indie stuff that he did. That's not as widely publicized as his WWF or WCW, or for that matter, ECW or Smoky mountain stuff. But man, he had such a rap on the indies. Everybody dies and spell out thug and dude, it's just the best. And, uh, if you saw Tracy Smothers, you know, you got your money's worth. I don't know that anybody I've ever met loved wrestling as much as he did. And, uh, we just lost a great man. And sorry for bringing the show down right in the middle, but that was one of the things I texted you this morning. It just sort of caught me by surprise because if I'm honest, we've been putting some shows in the can with Jim Ross and Arn Anderson and a few others. And I would plug his GoFundMe every single time. And it's just, you know, I just assumed, Hey man, he's going to beat this. And then we're going to help him with his hospital bills. And it didn't happen. And, uh, it sucks. Yes, it does. I still doesn't forgive you for, um, hey, I do want to mention segue from, from being late tonight. You, you, you said earlier 
you had a lot of personal stuff going on. I feel like we need to clarify. You're not sick. You're fine. No, these are family members who have been yeah. in some challenging stuff. That's required a little bit of travel. And we had to play best of last week, but we're pulling the nose up and everything's going to be okay. And Bruce is fine. So, uh, little thoughts and prayers for his family would go a long way right now. But first let's, uh, send those thoughts and prayers to the Smothers family. I don't know how to transition now to talk about big van Vader, but I'm going to try, uh, WCW told Vader on uh, October 11th, they're letting him go. And the official reason for the firing is his 90 day review window had passed. And then since he was medically unable to wrestle because of a shoulder injury, they're canceling the contract on that basis. And they're saying specifically in the newsletters, the Paul Orndorff thing will never be mentioned for legal reasons. Uh, it's just going to be a, a messy situation, but Mouser does say it puts Leon in a pretty interesting position because every promotion in the world is going to want to work with him. And of course we know in January, here he comes and he's going to make quite the entrance and he's programmed with Shawn Michaels. And I know you weren't always the biggest WCW fan. But occasionally you guys would pick up some incredible talent there. You know, guys like Cactus Jack, Steve Austin, but Vader, not only was he the first of that acquisition of those three, but perhaps the biggest, I mean, a couple of years prior to this, he's not only the WCW champ, he's headlining every pay-per-view as their number one heel. And you probably needed some big time heels, especially since one of your big heels like Mabel, he's injuring motherfuckers left and right. How excited were you to get your hands on Vader? You know, initially, very. And I think that when you looked at the potential of Leon, it was all you saw was an upside. And I think that, unfortunately, I, I get a lot of heat for this, I know, but uh, I think that Leon's best years were behind him at that point. And once Leon came up and you saw how Leon had to work to get over, it's – Okay, but you also have to to work to get other people over too. Um, it just was, yeah, it was different. But yes, we were excited initially because you looked at this big bastard and you'd heard the legends, you know, and everything. Seen, I, I, I loved the headdress and everything with the damn cot coming out of it and shit that he wore out in Japan. But I never, I never got you know, beyond that. And I think that Leon worked himself kind of back into a corner because really, you know, what he did was beat people up. Well, eventually you got to do the job. Eventually you got to, um, as a heel, uh, eventually somebody's got to conquer you. And that, that was an uphill climb, I think for, for Leon and, and a lot of people. And the, backstage incident with Orndorff and the lure of the tough guy, uh, Leon white, um, had that had tarnished that reputation, that image a little bit because inside the behind the scenes of the business, I think people looked at him kind of as uh, a bully that got his comeuppance from Paul Orndorff and that, that legend and tough guy lore, uh, wasn't there anymore. And it was, you know, yeah, we would have loved to have had him unscathed, but, uh, still, I think we were pretty happy to have him. Who's going to take care of your family. If something happens to you, what would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to goliathlife.com. 
Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to goliathlife.com. Well, let's see how happy you were to have Bill Watts at the September 24th event in Saginaw, Michigan. Events would announce that uh, at a team meeting, that Bill Watts is now in charge of the creative aspects of Titan sports business. And Vince would say that he's stepping back to act more as a company executive. And while he will oversee Bill Watts, he will not overrule him. Of course, it only took a few weeks before Watts apparently taking those words seriously was overruled and felt like he didn't have the authority he expected. And he quits the company. And, uh, the week is now filled with rumors about the fraying relationship between the 56 year old Bill Watts and Vince McMahon Meltzer would write rumors started in midweek that Watts had left the company after a blow up with Vince, which were immediately denied by the company. Apparently earlier in the week, perhaps on Tuesday, since that's the day the company does voiceovers for syndication, there was a blow up involving Watts and other company employees, not involving McMahon, who was busy doing television, announcing voiceovers for syndication. And it was all over his office, not being ready. The rumors quickly spread both in and out of wrestling that Watts was gone. Or according to those close to the situation, Watts had quit, but was quickly talked out of it. And others were saying it was just simply a disagreement, not involving Vince in any way. Either way, Watts was still working on Wednesday and Thursday before officially quitting on Friday after a meeting with McMahon. Among the wrestlers, the belief was that the quitting was over the two having a disagreement about the future of the creative end of the company regarding WrestleMania 12 and after that show. Others who probably would be more reliable and have a better read on the situation claim it was simply a matter of power and authority and that booking things like who would be on top or the style of wrestling in the ring had nothing to do with it. Watts wanted to make major changes within the company in regard to the discipline of wrestlers perhaps similar to when he was in WCW and became such a popular figure with the boys instituting fines for being late to the building, wanting heels and baby faces to be kept apart in public and wanting the wrestlers to get more serious about their house show matches, including uh, banning playing cards in the dressing room before the matches because he felt the wrestlers could spend their time being better with their opponent and talking about their match. Uh, McMahon apparently felt the system was running fine as it was. And the discipline was not a problem amongst the wrestlers. Watts, who thought he was going to have full authority over this aspect of the business and be the number two person in the company. When he found out he wasn't immediately resigned on October 13th. And, um, during a shoot interview with Sean Oliver over at kfabecommentaries.com, Kevin Nash told the story, how he told Watts that up here, I eat you on the food chain while putting him in his place backstage. Did you ever hear about this story with diesel? What do you remember about the blow up with production on Tuesday? And ultimately, why did he leave on Friday as best you understand it? There was no blow up with production on, on that Tuesday in any way, shape or form there, you know, bill, bill was bill. And, um, I, I had to chuckle. There was somewhere in there where you said that the, that he was a popular figure. What that was WCW clearly tongue in cheek. Um, yeah. Cause I, I can't remember a time that bill was ever a popular figure backstage, um, with very few exceptions, 
But, you know, Bill came in and Bill uh, heard what Bill wanted to hear. And Bill wanted to hear that he was second in charge and that he would have final say. It was Vince's company. Vince is the boss. That's what makes uh, the company go round is that the buck does stop somewhere. And the buck stops at Vince McMahon's desk. And Bill wasn't fond of that arrangement and thought that he was the one guy that could change it and be the end all be all and have power to do whatever it is that he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. That just wasn't going to work. So Bill had a blow up uh, with Lisa Wolf. He had a blow up with uh, some other folks came over because Bill was working with Pat Patterson and myself and Bill came over, wanted to quit. And we were like trying to talk to Bill and telling him to calm down and chill out and just talk to Vince, you know, don't, don't let this other shit get in the way of potentially, you know, your job. And I know Bill, you know, wanted to just be right. Bill wanted to be able to say to anybody in the corporate structure, Hey, fuck you. You're fired. Get the fuck out. That's not the way it works uh, in business. And, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work here. So the bill stayed a few more days. And, and I remember getting the, getting the phone call and he said, it goes, guys, I just quit. Talked to Vince. I'm driving home to Bixby right now. And took his rental car, took his Ford Taurus and drove from Stanford to Bixby, Oklahoma that night. But it was bill being bill and bill not wanting to accept that anybody had, uh, power above his head and he wanted autonomy and that was just wasn't going to happen. I always laugh whenever I hear the example of playing cards in the locker room because that happened in a, a live event in Boston. Uh, Bill and I actually rode up to the, to the show together. And when we got there, I had never played, um, gin, and all the boys played gin and all that shit. And Jerry Lawler was sitting there and, and all that stuff. And Jerry asked me, he goes, you want to play a game of gin? And I said, I don't know how to play. And he said, well, I'll teach you. So Lawler and I are sitting in the dressing room and we're playing gin. And Bill came in and I, I remember exactly where the fuck we were sitting and, and everything. Because Bill came in the door and Lawler and I were sitting there playing gin. And, and Bill said, he goes, hey, Jerry, um, uh, I want to talk to you about your match. He says, all right, let me finish this hand. I'll, I'll come right in. And that went up Bill's ass sideways. So next thing you know, we get back on Monday. Bill sends out a, a deal company-wide into all the talent. No more, like a whole list of rules. You couldn't play cards <laughs> in the locker room anymore. All this other shit, you know, the kayfabing and everything else. And Lawler calls me and says, you know, hey, do you think that was uh, that was us? I said, I know that was us. And um, so, yeah, Lawler and I were responsible for the card playing thing. It's a good little sidebar. Yeah, but it was, uh, come on. I mean, we, we literally finished that hand in a minute and Lawler went and, and talked to him. It feels like at times Bill Watts could be like uh, the type of parent who would say, why? Because I said so. Yes, definitely. He, he definitely was. And it was, it was his way or the highway in his, in his mind. 
There wasn't an alternative way to do things. If you brought up something, the answer was no, because it wasn't his idea. And that wasn't what he had fucking laid out for tonight. Let's, uh, let's talk about the Kevin Nash quote. What do you make of this, uh, up here? I eat you on the food chain comment. I don't, obviously I wasn't there. If Kevin said that I, I was there for Kevin and, and Sean, um, being very gracious to bill anything you need, man. Hey, let us know we're on your side. You know, we, we want to get better whenever you got any ideas for us, man, let us know. And, and we'd love to shoot stuff by you and everything and then work with you. So I don't know. But I mean, he's, I, I wasn't there. So I have no idea whether Kevin said that or not. When Kevin's there with Bill Watts, he's working like the stupid Vinny Vegas gimmick in WCW. So he's like captain undercard. And then when Watts joins up with the WWF, well, things are different. He's the champ. Now he's got Vince's ear. Could you see, Vin, could you see uh, Kevin Nash saying something like that? I don't know. I, I, you know, frankly, I think that Kevin, um, would have been smarter than to say something like that. I think Kevin's too good of a worker. I think Kevin would have worked him. I think Kevin would have been, Kevin's a charming son of a bitch. Oh, one of the best ever. Yeah. So I, I, to me, I could see Kevin, you know, trying to charm the pants off bill. Unless but, he tried to pull some of the old cowboy Bill White stuff where he's going to puff his chest out and act like he's going to beat everybody's ass in the locker room. And then old South Detroit boy probably ain't putting up with a bunch of that shit. If I had to guess. Not say it didn't happen. I don't know, but I definitely Bill Watts was puffing his chest out and letting everybody know that by God, my way or the highway and guys just go right around bill and walk into Vince's office and, and yeah. say, Hey. You know, in, in, in fairness, you, you kind of, and Lord, I'm not trying to defend bill Watts, but when they know they can undermine you like that, you sort of neuter bill. Do you not? Well, again, I think that it was bill's perception of what he was brought in to do. Bill was brought in to work with the creative work with the talent. And in doing that, you're working with Vince. So maybe to set a better way, Bill thought his job was to get the boys in line. And really his job was to get the boys over. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about the uh, thing we know for sure in your house four sucked. The readers of the wrestling observer gave it 5.4% thumbs up 5.1% thumbs in the middle an unbelievable 89.4% thumbs down. Oof, not a great show before we get into the actual show. There's a dark match before the, uh, the pay-per-view is live and it's Bob Holly pinning rad Radford and what was described as an average opener. Of course, we know Bob Holly's going to become hardcore Holly and really make a name for himself. Rad Radford's not long for this world. He's ultimately going to have a pit stop in, uh, ECW and then go to WCW before passing away way, way too soon in 1998. What type of career do you think Rad Radford or Louis Spicoli would have had, had he not died so young? You know, I, I looked at Spicoli as one of those guys that right now, well, maybe not right now, but, uh, 10 years ago would have been a top guy. 
would it would have been um I would have envisioned him. I'm not saying this is what he was, but I'm saying that he could have gotten there to be almost a Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig working heel. Louie could bump his ass off. Great timing. And as young as he was, had a natural ability. So, um, unfortunately his demons got the better of him and, it was just such a sad, sad, tragic story because literally this kid could have had the world by the balls. He was, I think he was that talented. I really did. And from everybody we've ever heard from a hell of a great guy. Like everybody Sweet. enjoyed. I mean, just, I, oh my God, man. He was like. Uh, you know, I say guys are sweet guy. Louie was one of those sweet souls that wouldn't hurt a fly that just wanted to have fun in life and, and wanted to wrestle and great, great, great kid. Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com. We see uh, up and coming singing sensation Joni Wilson open the show. She's going to sing the Canadian national anthem. We looked her up and now she lives in Henderson, Tennessee. She sings and she's a real estate agent. Uh, how do you find people who are going to sing the Canadian national anthem in this era? You look in uh, Canadian National Anthems, R.S. and shit, in the green pages. See, they don't have yellow pages. They have green pages up there and pink pages. I didn't know that. I'm colorblind. You're showing off. Well, see, there you go. And I think that that's where she was. No, she was a Canadian singer. I think Carl DeMarco brought her to us and said, hey, this is literally, as you described, this is an up-and-comer. And shit, had Ricky Medlock sing it, so why not her? An old, an old bison head got the gig. Bison head got the gig. Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Jerry Lawler are on commentary for this uh, show, which is kind of fun. And as soon as they open, King's going to complain about having to be in Winnipeg. You idiot. And he says there are places like Florida and California. And Vince reminds him it is the world wrestling federation. I'm curious about the set here. You want to talk about deep in the weeds here. Why is it some of the, in your house sets, you have the video screen in the background and some, you don't, it doesn't feel like it's very consistent. Like it's looks like this every time. It probably depended upon where the setup was. It's just what we could get in and what looked better for that particular setup. Our first match is triple H versus Rikishi. Wait, no, it's Hunter Hearst Helmsley pinning Fatu in eight minutes and six seconds with the pedigree. Meltzer would write Fatu worked much harder than usual and did a good job of carrying Helmsley who they are clearly protecting and building for the future. Helmsley did his finisher after Fatu missed a splash off the top rope, two stars. Uh, this, this is kind of a fun match. This is four years before their, you know, big time stars as triple H and Rikishi Helmsley's going to try to spray Fatu with a perfume bottle at the beginning of the match, which is sort of old school and fun makes you think of, uh, the original heel in wrestling and, uh, Fatu gets the early offense, delivers the back body drop. And, uh, throughout the match, Lawler's making all kinds of, oh, Fatu smells bad type jokes. Like you said, this Fatu was big and bad. 
but smell isn't everything. This is uh, an okay match, but it is kind of fun to see what these guys were capable of doing in 1995, knowing what is to come in the future. Yeah, it was just an okay match, but when you, you know, you look at it and you look at where both went, it's an interesting insight to the future and it wasn't, um, yeah, God, it wasn't holy shit, but yeah, decent opener. The finish did get a pop. The pedigree was over. The, the first time people saw the pedigree, they popped for that. I'm not saying this is the first time he used it, but it is an interesting maneuver in a business where it feels like everything's been done. That was a nice little finish, especially in 95. Yes, it was. It was. And they did, they did like it. But again, I, I, for me watching it, going back and looking at it is kind of like, um, holy shit here. We're going to be two of the biggest stars and in a very few years in the future. The, um, what is the worst pedigree you ever saw that one on superstars in 96? Who was that kid's name from North Carolina who took it straight on his fucking head? Oh God. Was that Chris champion? No champagne. Champagne. Dude. Marty. Um, (laughs) what a fucking pedigree that was, huh? Oh, good. Good Lord. Yes. Sham first name, sham last name, pain, baby. Uh, what was his last name? Marty Garner is his real name. Marty Garner. Good Lord, man. He he took that shit. Like nobody ever did ever. Yeah. Have I told the story about Marty Garner being rock's assistant? You have before very briefly tell it again. Ah, it was just great. Cause Marty was going to Hollywood when, when rock you know, went and was doing his own thing in Hollywood, hired Marty as his assistant. And there's quotation marks around the word assistant. And Marty went out and got a laptop and got like some suits and all this shit and showed up to work. And he's all ready to be rock's assistant. And he's like, what are you doing? And he says, I'm ready, man. He goes, yeah, man. He goes, you don't need a computer or anything. You just need like a notepad. I need like a couple pairs of, uh, Adidas shoe or Nike shoes <laughs> this size, get some chicken sandwiches and here's how I want them. And I think it took the air out of Marty sales a little bit. He was, he was disappointed because he saw his future in Hollywood being bright. The bright lights of Hollywood, baby. First name, sham last name pain. After the match, while Hemsley is being interviewed, doing what Meltzer would call a total Steven Regal knockoff. Henry Godwin comes out with the slop bucket. Helmsley's going to hide behind Lawler, who's doing the interviewing here. And Godwin then chases Helmsley away for an angle that Meltzer says basically went nowhere. And there were a few fan signs that were confiscated during the opening segment, including an ultimate warrior sign that was taken away from a front row fan. And, uh, of course we know that ultimate warrior is going to be here in what? Six months, maybe a little more. And there's also a sign that says, you fucker. Hi, Todd. We see clearly for a second on the hard cam before the director cuts away. When do you remember signs becoming a real issue where guys were just trying to put curse words and offensive shit up there just to get a rise and get themselves over? I just think the the more that they became popular and as raw went live and people seeing the multitude of signs out there trying to sneak something in. Here's my problem with signs. 
And I think that everybody should, you know, say whatever you want. Don't be vulgar and don't hold it up all night long. People pay good money for the seats behind you. And more times than not, it's the thing that people leave out a lot of times on if somebody takes their sign is because they've been asked nicely. Okay, we've seen your sign. Um, and we're asking you, please don't keep your sign up and please don't hold your sign up because people behind you can't see. And it's okay. Hold it up, but put it down. And if it's vulgar, look, you can't have that. There's kids here and shit like that. So there, there are reasons for things and and guys just try to get shit on TV. But (laughs) you fucker. Hi, Todd would probably be one of those. That's not suitable. For all audiences. Let's move along. Smoking guns up next. They're going to beat razor Ramon and one, two, three kid in 12 minutes and 46 seconds. And they're going to retain the WWF tag titles in the process. Meltzer would say Billy Gunn had a new haircut to make him look like a tall Dean Douglas kid. Did a, did a subtle heel move early pulling down the top rope. So Bart took a bump backwards over the top kick tagged in. Kid tagged in with a lot of quick kicks. The match was good, but not as good as one would expect, given that Kid was involved and the crowd was subdued, except when Ramon did the turning the pile around spot, leading people to believe Kid was going to get the pin and win the title. The match was also clumsy in spots as Ramon got the hot tag and set up the finish. Ramon did the razor's edge on Billy and stalled around while Kid begged for the tag so he could win the title. After more stalling, Ramon does tag kid who went for the cocky pin, but Billy ended up crucifixing him to the mat and they're going to keep the title after the three count after the match kid did what was supposed to be a heel turn and threw a temper tantrum, shoving razor Ramon who walked out on him and beating up both guns. However, the turn didn't work live or on tape as the announcers didn't sell it as a turn and the crowd live booed the hell out of the guns when they were presented the belts and held them up after the match. The only real indication it was a turn is later in a 900 line segment where kid was being rude to the caller two and three quarter stars. I like the idea of one, two, three kid turning heel, but did we just underestimate how the guns weren't exactly over with this crowd? Did they not want to boo anything that razor was associated with? Did they respect Sean Waltman as a worker or was the creative just less than ideal? I just don't think they cared. Um, more than anything, I, I just don't think that, that they really cared about kid. And I don't think they cared about the guns. The only guy in the match that they did care about was razor and he wasn't directly involved, uh, in it. So it was flat. That's all there is to it. It's just one of those that you kind of look at and, oh, Hey, this might be cool, but you know, three of the four weren't over at that point. Let's, um, let's talk about the, the turn we do see eventually where Sean Waltman's going to officiate a match on the raw before survivor series in November. It's between razor and Sid, and he's going to help Sid win with a fast count, which I guess makes the turn official. Did you prefer one, two, three kid as a baby face or a heel? Um, I say that because he's brought in as like the ultimate underdog. You don't see it coming, blah, blah, blah. Later when he's six and X-Pac and all that, you could argue, well, certainly there he was better as a heel, but one, two, three kid to me, 
just feels like, oh, he's this undersized baby face who somehow was the, the underdog and he, he stole a victory. That's baby face stuff. It is. And that's what he was best at that point in his career. But I think Sean always wanted to be the lightning kid, the cocky, arrogant heel that worked with Jerry Lynn and, uh, Chaz in GWF. So to, to the kid, he was, he was this cocky heel and the underdog that despite everything actually overcame was what people were buying. And that's what they bought into. And that's what they wanted out of the one, two, three kid. So I think anything else at this point was kind of a force. The the audience was spitting it back up. They didn't want that. Let's keep it going here. Let's talk about the next match. It's a, it's a big match. By the way, the match we just covered with two and three quarter stars, the readers of the observer thought it was the best match. So that gives you an idea of what's to come, but it is history. What we're about to see. It's the in-ring debut of gold dust. Is going to pin Marty Jannetty in 11 minutes and 15 seconds with a face first suplex. Meltzer would say Goldust was given an elaborate ring entrance with stars from the lights and the lights turned down and glitter. However, once he took off his wig, he looked like a banana with black ears. The two were trying and Jannetty took some nice bumps, but they didn't work well together and missed a lot of spots. Most importantly, the crowd didn't react to the gimmick. When it was over, it came off as much ado about nothing star and a half. And of course we know that's not going to be the case for long. Eventually he's going to become one of the more controversial and hotter acts around chat me up though. what did you think of this initial outing was Vince disappointed that the fans didn't respond bigger. It feels like a lot was invested in the ring entrance and his look and the character. Was there an expectation that they would, I don't know, have a, a bigger reaction than this. I don't know because look to me and watching it back, it was his uh, first string introduction. It was his debut. It was a big thing. Um, I think that the audience was more in shock and didn't know how to react more than anything else. I don't think that they knew exactly how the hell to take this character. And when you take off the wig and you've got this close cropped haircut and black ears and all it was it was an awful lot to absorb all at once. So from my vantage point, I kind of looked at it like the audience just didn't know exactly how the hell to take this character standing in front of him. He wasn't fish nor foul. He was androgynous. Oh god. And it was um th- there was no issue with Marty. The the whole thing was about Gold Dust debut. I thought it was cool. And the black ears are really cool. Vince says that Goldust is androgynous and Lawler asked him to repeat the word, which no one really knows the meaning of at the time. And King says, well, McMahon, you have a point. And you can even hear Jr. start to laugh when he gets to the punchline. And if you put a hat on your head, you might cover it up. Pretty good little one-liner from Lawler. Oh, that's a fresh. That's a good one. King. On raw, when gorilla monsoon announces that the Mabel Yokozuna match is going to be taking place instead of the undertaker taking on Mabel, he said it was the first time that these two would wrestle each other, which is obviously not the case since they worked a program the prior year, but here we are. 
Yokozuna goes to a double count out with King Mabel in five minutes and 12 seconds. Uh, Mabel was said to have weighed a legitimate 580 pounds for this match. And he says, if that's the case, Yoko must be pushing 700. He called it a horrible match with a horrible finish and a strong candidate to be the worst match of the year. And he gave it negative two stars. <laughs> that was fucking awful. It <laughs> was fucking awful. It was like, you know, it's one of those that you see it. Uh, uh, God damn on, on the independence. And you see two fucking guys that have no right to be in the ring and thinking that everything it, it was, it was fucking terrible. It was sad is what it was. And, um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Did you see the, did you see the thing on Twitter? And I don't even know where, where the hell it is, where the guys on the turnbuckle. And no, 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 no. I don't want to, what? nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody listening to this has seen that it's painful to look at. Why, why do you want to talk about that? Because that's what this match reminded me of. Oh, it was that bad to watch. Yes. Dude, that motherfucker has grasshopper legs. I mean, good Lord. I, I, uh, somebody showed it to me, uh, Monday night and it, it was on a loop and it kept going over and I couldn't look away, but every single time that he hit, I was, I cringed and went, Oh God, no. And then I had to look again. By the way, we should mention that fella has, uh, a GoFundMe because apparently he did not have, he's an indie guy. Didn't have insurance His medical. He's had surgery now. But his medical bills are like over $200,000, which is just hard to imagine, but that's, that's where we are. Uh, so, well, yeah. And some people don't belong in the ring and you know, in, in, in this case, this was one of those that, that was watching this match where you just go, good Lord. Um, probably anything else would have been better. It was bad. It was real bad. Yeah. It's ugly. We should mention, um, if you want to go check them out, it's, it's, it's on, uh, it's on GoFundMe. Uh, just, uh, I don't even know what to say. I feel bad for the kid. The guy's name's Justin, by the way. Not mm-hmm. fun, not, not fun to look at. Let's move on. Of course we know that's the worst match of the night. It's not even close. The readers of the wrestling observer. Uh, agree. I guess my question is when we know that two giant men like this is not going to make for a good match. Why does it keep getting booked over and over throughout wrestling history? I think that there is a, and, and frankly, a large segment of the audience that is looking for the spectacle and the collision and to see what the two, you know, like the two biggest and strongest when they finally meet someone their own size and is, and of their own ability. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to come out of that? And all too often, with very few exceptions, it's it's not good because they both have the same gimmick and you can't do the same spots with the guy that does all your spots. So that's difficult. Let's uh, let's talk about the next match. Before we do, we should talk about Shawn Michaels. He comes out next. He's been on a monster babyface run since WrestleMania 11. He won the intercontinental belt from Jeff Jarrett at the second in your house in Nashville. And he's going to lose it here tonight without ever wrestling a match. Michaels would, uh, be written up in the newsletter as this. 
Shawn Michaels appeared totally out of character with noticeable marks around his face, particularly under the eyes and around the upper lip at the Winnipeg pay-per-view show, walking slowly to the ring to hand the IC title to Douglas and walking away, looking incredibly sad as weird irony would have it. Michaels appeared in character on a show that aired the next morning tape before the incident on the Danny Bonaducci talk show, talking about being a chick magnet. Man, this is sort of a, a famous moment where we see Sean come to the ring and hand the title to Dean Douglas. It would be replayed a lot. Sean's teary walk to the ring and that rather colorful jacket. What do you remember about this spectacle? Well, I, you know, it was, it was sad. First of all, because you sit there and, and once you saw Sean and you realize that this has now had almost a week or more. Um, it's had a while to heal up. Okay. And you you sit there and you think about, holy shit, um, how bad it, it it must've been. And I actually did see pictures of him in the hospital and it, it wasn't pretty by any stretch of the imagination. So, uh, it was, it was tough. You had to do something. And I think that there was a segment of the audience that felt, well, is this real? Is it not? So you, you show Sean, you show the, the injuries to his face, you show the injuries and make a story out of it is, is the best that you can. You're, you're dealt a set of cards and you got to play them the best way that you can at the time. Well, we're going to play them here. Ramon's going to pin Dean Douglas to win the intercontinental title in 11 minutes and one second. Meltzer would write. Before the match, Michael slowly walked to the ring with the cameras focusing on his battered and sad eyes, slowly gave up the title and slowly walked to the back. Those few minutes were a production masterpiece. Both the crowd and the match were dead early coming off of a downer and two basically did nothing for the first eight minutes. It appeared they were pacing for a 25 plus minute match. Ramon didn't even try and facially made that obvious. The last two minutes were very good with some nice moves and near falls before a flat finish where Ramon used a back suplex and both fell down. Ramon had his arm draped on Douglas and the ref counted three. The ring announcer did the tease saying the winner and intercontinental champ razor Ramon Douglas's leg was under the ropes to give him his out, but this was real bad. One star lot to unpack here. You know, we all agree that they did a great job with the Sean story. But it's almost written in code here that Dave maybe is insinuating Razor Ramon was sandbagging Shane Douglas. And of course, Shane would be very vocal about his treatment from the click and the way they handled him. And there's even a famous story out there where allegedly someone overheard them talking about Dean Douglas and Scott Hall insinuating, Hey, let's not get him fired. Let's just starve him out. And obviously Shane Douglas is not long for the world wrestling federation. And later when he's in ECW and Scott Hall finds himself looking for a gig, when his days in WCW were drying up, he shows up to an ECW show and is uh, shown the door by Mr. Douglas, remembering his treatment here in the WWF. When you watch this match back, do you think there's something to that? Did, did razor sandbag? Shane Douglas, did he not want him to be successful? Was there a personal issue or was it just bad chemistry in your opinion? Horrible chemistry. They didn't like each other and they had horrible chemistry. 
And I think that Razor felt that uh, Shane was not was not up to speed, didn't come in in the kind of shape that he felt he should have been able to come in, couldn't keep up. And I think all that played into it. But they had no chemistry at all and didn't really care for one another. I think it showed. But, it, yeah, it, it was it was nothing. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a lot of walking, talking, and, and getting to – to a finish to try to maybe have a uh, personal issue after the fact. But I don't think people by this point, you know, it's kind of a bummer because it's a baby face vacating the title the way that Sean did. And you, you could have put anybody out there and I don't think that they would have been happy. He gets a rematch for the intercontinental title against razor on the December 4th raw. They do an in your house and his last appearance on WWF television was in your house five, where he was booked to wrestle Ahmed Johnson. And, um, the, the storyline was his back was not in wrestling condition. So he introduces buddy Landale as his substitute and he's defeated by Ahmed in 42 seconds. I think his very last day with the company was a show in Madison square garden where he said he had a severe muscle spasm in his back and if agitated, it could have paralyzed him. And, uh, Vince McMahon basically is pissed off at this news and allegedly tried to get Shane to admit that this was all bullshit. And, uh, he's out of there. It just feels like this thing is snake bit with Shane Douglas in the company. Do you think this was the beginning of the end that Maybe he did believe in the character. He being Vince and thought, man, we can do something with this. Cause he's putting him with razor and originally Sean for the intercontinental title. And he certainly had time with vignettes as painful as they were to watch, but they were trying something. And then the match here just sucks. And it feels like if at worst case, it's the beginning of the end. Would you agree? I would agree. I, I don't think that. You know, I think Shane came in with a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance and quite a bit of anticipation. And I don't think that his performance met that in anticipation. That's all there is to it. Is the thought here. You've told us before, carry me through it. But a lot of times the idea is if you have to have a substitution, then whoever, whatever the substitution is, it has to be better than the original thing. So if, if so-and-so can't make the show and he's been advertised and, and now we've got to break that news, we need to come back with, we've got an even bigger star. And I'm not saying razor necessarily was the bigger star than Shawn Michaels. I'm not insinuating that at all, but perhaps giving the title to Dean and then having a baby face beat him makes it feel like a feel good moment for the live crowd. Is that right? Well, I think, yes, definitely. Because again, you're sitting there and it's a baby face who's vacating the championship. And I would argue that the next biggest star in the company was razor. So this was, yes, let's, let's put razor out there and have a baby face finish here because they're going to feel even worse. If now your substitution comes out and he gets beat by the heel. So no, this was strictly something to do for the audience, uh, live and at home to make them happy. One of the things as one could be right. Well, normally when you have somebody who can't compete like this, you, you vacate the title, you have a tournament, you crown a new champion. 
Instead, let's just give the belt to the bad guy and say he has to forfeit it because Sean can't compete. And then let's have the good guy get the revenge, send everybody home happy. Yeah, different. A lot of different ways to do things. Let's I don't think about, there's a. I don't think there's a manual that says okay. No, no, no. Champion can't compete. You have to have a tournament for it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that's probably the thinking of hey, we're not. We don't have the Undertaker here, and now Shawn Michaels is off. We got to have some sort of fucking feel good moment, and it can feel like a major happening if they see a title switch, and it's one of their favorites winning over a guy that everybody hates. Exactly. It's main event time. As a reminder, the bulldog has recently turned heel during a tag match on raw by attacking his partner, diesel bulldog, then cut off his dreadlocks and went with a crew cut. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about that. I liked bulldog with the dreadlocks. Why do you think he switched it up here? Is this someone from creative services or Vince wanting him to switch it up? Or is this just Davey's call? No, this was something that we discussed and it was something Davey wanted to do. I think he looked a thousand times better with the short hair, but his shoulders were huge. Um, I just thought he looked a hell of a lot better with, with the crew cut and the short hair. In my opinion, I hated the dreadlocks. It, it just didn't fit to me. It was like he was trying to be something that he wasn't with the dreadlocks in my opinion. So I was a big proponent of the, yes, please. Good God update and change your look. And it was, and that's what it was for. It was to change his look and try and freshen it up from, I think he'd had the dreadlocks in WCW prior to that. I just didn't think that it fit him. Next up our main event, Diesel's going to retain the title, beating Davey boy in 18 minutes and 14 seconds. Woof. feels like a long time for a diesel match. That's what right. Virtually the entire match was Smith working on diesel's left knee. Diesel sold the knee so well. It was a logical match that would have been a good match. If the crowd was educated to submissions, which they aren't, if they had done a good five minutes at the end, which they didn't, and it had a strong finish, which it had anything, but so it came off as a boring match early in the match. Diesel took a bump outside the ring and crashed into Brett Hart, who was doing commentary and shoved Brett hard during the match. Smith used a sharpshooter, but diesel powered out to tell the story that he may be able to survive Brett's finisher later in the match. Diesel made his comeback, starting by pushing Smith off as he went for the power slam and kicked him in the face. Jim Cornette, who interfered more than any heel manager in a WWF title match in years, wound up crashing in Smith's way and got hit with a forearm. Smith ended up posting diesel outside the ring and slapped hard at ringside. Hart jumped into the ring and went wild on Smith for a DQ. And, uh, it's a DQ on diesel for outside interference. So diesel then attacks Brett for costing him the match. And it's going to build up their singles match, which is the November 19th pay-per-view show. And they go off the air with a pull apart brawl. I don't hate the idea of the story they're trying to tell to build towards the next pay-per-view. I do like the idea of them putting Brett's finisher on and diesel powering out all that's good stuff, but a DQ in and we're spending money for it. It does feel like a little bit of a letdown. what do you think? Um, I, it was, it was boring. Here's the problem. Uh, it was, we're trying to get Davey boy over as a heel and trying to tell a story with Brett and diesel. And it was convoluted. 
It was go see Razor Ramon versus Dean Douglas. There wasn't really any chemistry with Bulldog and Kevin Nash. Add that into the mix, and it was trying to tell too many stories at one time uh, from the standpoint of, hey, guys, we've got this. We're promoting to the next show, and it just wasn't a really good execution. The match could have, frankly, could have been at least 10 minutes shorter, and I wouldn't have minded to do the same thing. But it um, it was the, the, the cherry on the Sunday of this pay-per-view. Um, and it was like a, a really old rotten cherry that was at the bottom of the fucking jar. <laughs> you put it on there, and the ice cream was actually yogurt, but it was the cheap kind of yogurt where they just used the powder to make the chocolate. And, yeah. And the chocolate syrup was Nestle's quick. It wasn't good. It just wasn't good. I don't know how else to say it, but um, the show is not easy to watch. It wasn't one of our best efforts. Well, unfortunately, Vince McMahon agreed. There's an interesting story in the observer about the end of the show quote, just as the cameras faded to black, signifying the end of the in your house pay-per-view show in Winnipeg, a disgusted Vince McMahon threw down his glasses and his headset and said the words horrible as he started to walk to the back with Jim Ross while the pull apart brawl with Bret Hart and diesel was still going on in the ring. Seconds later, as the brawl ended diesel, the person McMahon had planned to build his company around one year earlier was being booed out of the building. Yet another in the long line of failed experiments in his quest to find the new Hulk Hogan, the virtually unanimous crowd reaction to diesel after yet another unimpressive main event match seems to make it only logical that Bret Hart is destined to have a career similar to the man who has being compared with results in outbursts, Ric Flair, like Flair Hart is the man picked to pick up the pieces time after time when experiments of creating new world champions, that will be the next big thing in wrestling end up with declining box office figures. Do you remember Vince being upset at the end of this show? I, I, I don't recall that specifically. I, I would imagine going back and looking at this show is one of those that I probably wanted to forget immediately. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Vince felt the same way because it wasn't a good show. It didn't flow. It was, um, just drudging all the way through from, from start to finish. And it just, just sucked. That's the only way to say it, man. It, it, it sucked. Probably would have had to improve just suck, but it was one of those situations where, okay, you know, you look at it and you're back to the drawing board and it was to get to a November pay-per-view survivor series. So you're looking at it like, okay, this is half ass a freebie. And you can make every excuse in the world. Oh, October is never really a good month for us and, and shit like that. Um, we were snake bit on, on injuries and uh, trying to get to Brett and Diesel along the way. And along the way, it just wasn't a good story to tell. Talk to me a little bit about where we were at this point. Did you already have WrestleMania 12 mapped out? I mean, I, I know that sounds funny, but on this show, we've got Bret Hart doing commentary. So we're building to Brett and diesel. We know that 
we're coming off of WrestleMania with Diesel and Sean. But Sean, who a lot of people thought was the heir apparent, if you will, he just got his ass beat and had to forfeit the Intercontinental title. Did you already know they're doing for WrestleMania 12 at this point? Yes. As far as Sean and Brett, yes. Um, but is, as I say, you know, you're, you're at this particular exact point of this pay-per-view. I think there were doubts with the whole Sean injury. Yeah. That's what's fascinating to me is it does feel like, well, what can Sean do or not do? We know we've got Brett, but this show feels like we know diesel ain't it. This is the end of the experiment. This is the end of us trying that. We're just going to get to the next show, get it back on Brett, and then we'll figure it out. Yeah, it was, but it was also, there was that build underneath with Sean in the intercontinental championship and hoping to get Sean where you wanted to get Sean. So in our mind, yes, we were already getting there. Cause Vince had made the decision to turn Sean baby face and, and, and let's go with it. So help me understand that. Let's, let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute. And I know you get annoyed when I do it. So bear with me. If Sean didn't forfeit the title here, who would he lost it to and when? Or would the plan have been WrestleMania 12 world champion versus intercontinental champion like six years prior? Well, I tell you at the time, one of the people that was in consideration to get that championship was Dean Douglas. But uh, because of the, the booking here, we felt like we're out undertaker, we're out Shawn Michaels. We're not doing a title switch in the main. We got to do something noteworthy, send them home. Happy big baby face pop. So maybe between now and, you know, Royal rumble ish, Dean would have had the rematch and, and got the belt off him. Yeah. I, and again, I don't remember exactly how the hell we had it, but I do know that Dean was talked about to be that intercontinental champion and then get Sean moving on to the title at WrestleMania 12. Um, it was a little turbulent times here because you, you lost undertaker and now you lost Sean. And it was like, fuck. Right. Um, what's next? Let's talk about what's next on the show. For those who were in attendance, I can't believe this is real. Mark Canterbury, Henry Godwin beat Sid after this. I can't believe that's real, but. Henry Godwin beat Sid and then Lawler does a five minute monologue insulting Winnipeg. Uh, and then of course, eventually, uh, Isaac Yankum is here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Lawler and skip are in Isaac Yankum's corner. And, uh, we've got some folks from the Winnipeg blue bombers in the corner of, of Bret Hart. And what a fucking weird time this is. We've also got Owen Hart and Yokozuna beating Savio Vega and bam, bam, Bigelow. It's a weird show. Uh, overall you watched it this week for the first time in freaking 25 years, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Oh, it's fucking horrible. Yeah. Pissed off. That I had to watch it. The best match. Everyone seemingly agreed. It's the smoking guns and kid and razor. The worst match. Everyone agrees. King Mabel and Yokozuna. Uh, but next week is a really good match here on the show. I've had a lot of fun talking about the old school stuff with you. And next week is pretty old school, man. King Kong Bundy. We're going to do a profile on him. We're going to hope to get to uh, taboo Tuesday, 2005 as well. 
but the main event, mark your calendars, boys and girls. It's November 13th, Eddie Guerrero, one of our most requested shows. We saved it for this particular anniversary. I can't believe this is a real thing, but that'll be the 15 year anniversary of Eddie's passing. We're also going to get to survivor series 95 and survivor series. Oh, five before the end of November. But right now let's hit some questions, man. Uh, Matthew Dawkins has a question that we don't talk about a lot here. Uh, someone who was released by the WWF shortly ahead of this pay-per-view was interviewer Stephanie Wyand. Can Bruce tell us about late 94 and early 95, this member of the crew, any fun stories about Stephanie? Stephanie wasn't there long enough to have any fun stories. Stephanie was part of the, uh, Charlie men. Stephanie came in for some new young, different talent outside of the wrestling business to host different studio shows. She was the host of mania, which we did out of master control. And we were looking to do more Stanford based stuff. We used her as a backstage interviewer, nice lady, but just didn't fit. Jim Cornette has stated he went up to Vince after the main event and apologized for how bad the match was. Bruce, what do you think that sounded like? God damn, I suck. What the fuck? I can't even get a good goddamn hamburger, cheeseburger in this fucking country. Get me the fuck out of here. And pin away, motherfucker. Troy wants to know. Fuck you, motherfucker. Thank you. Fucker. Troy wants to know whether any considerations of putting the Intercontinental belt on anyone other than Razor. He seemed to be a solid choice, but he'd already had a match that night. So was there anyone else discussed and, uh, was there any chance? Not really? No. I mean, it was, do you, do you leave it on Dean and, and get the heat, but it was disgusting heat or do you, do you put it on razor? Razor was really the only candidate at that point. Jason has a great question here. Why is Bret Hart not on a Canadian pay-per-view? I, can't, I know he's on commentary, but you know what I mean? Why did he not have a match? Again, it was an in-your-house, and these were designed to have a little bit different cards, and you didn't get all the major stars on every one of them. Mark wants to know, why was Winnipeg chosen for a pay-per-view? The company only did a few TVs there. Any insight as to why Winnipeg was chosen here? (sighs) Probably because it was close to Detroit. It's about the only reason I can think of. Detroit's always been a great market. Winnipeg's always been a good fucking hell of a wrestling market. Adam wants to know why does Bruce think Davy boy was so over in the UK, but never quite reached that same level here in America because he was British. <laughs> I mean, really and truly, uh, you know, I think that Davy boy was over to a, to a big extent. Davy and, and uh, dynamite is a tag team is the bulldogs. I think we're over. And I think that Davey also reached a level of success as singles that um, he was over to a point. Was he a megastar? No, but he was sure as fuck over. Oh, no doubt about that. Jaden wants to know what was Vince's first impressions of the debut match of Goldust? Did he think he'd picked the wrong guy or that the uh, gimmick was maybe not the right time or just needed a little more time? It needed more time. And I don't know that anyone, well, I take that back. I think that from my vantage point, I was expecting a bigger reaction of a holy shit. What the fuck is this? And people, I gave 
I think I gave the audience more credit from, from this standpoint that, oh, my God, everybody, you know, it's Dustin Rhodes and this is such a cool gimmick. But they didn't and they didn't care. And they were just into the gimmick and the gimmick wasn't fully fleshed out yet. So we were looking at it as, all right, uh, we got we got more work to do here. But it wasn't giving up on it at all because it definitely cool look, cool presentation. And we still had high hopes for it. Steven's asking the question I think a lot of people are asking. Never got why the belt went back to Razor, who was in the middle of a feud with Kid. At the next in your house, Ramon teamed with Janetti and never defended the belt. Seems like a click decision with lack of foresight to me. Lots of people wrote in and thought, was this the click doing their deal where, yeah, Sean's got to give it up and that sucks, but one of his buddies is going to get it right away, even if maybe it's not the most thought out idea. Well, it wasn't the most thought out idea because it was something that had to be made pretty much on the spot as we got closer to it. And we didn't have time to build anything else up. You got to remember also during this time, we were still, you know, banking a lot on syndication and and you had, uh, we were taping and going live on raw. So you didn't have the time to adjust the way that it became when you went live every week. So the click had nothing to do with that decision. Well, we've got a lot to do with the decision next week. We're talking about King Kong Bundy, pretty excited to be talking about old school. And, uh, I just hope that we get to hear your Ernie Ladd impression a few times. Bundy. You'll get it next week. You will get it next week. And we hope that you get it every single week. Don't forget to, uh, Keep Tracy Smothers family in your thoughts and prayers. And if a GoFundMe comes up for some other expenses they need, we will be sure to tweet that out over at Pritchard show. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard rock on and hug the ones you love this week and let them know you love them. All right, Bruce, uh, we've bullshitted for a long time. We're on a tight schedule here. You told me I've only got an hour and 20 minutes left. Can we get started? Are you ready to do this? Ready to talk 95? Yeah, I fucking guess. I mean, it's all a blur, but let's do it. Oh, well, thanks for your enthusiasm. Yeah. Okay. Go. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am excited to be here today, man. Holy shit. Excited to talk about 1995 because right now we are going to be in your house, bitches. For the fifth time. Fucking psych, man. I'm ready to do this. And with your photographic memory, this is going to be a tremendous show. Of course, we're talking about. I love photographing. <laughs> Hang on, let's get ready for this shit. I, you know, I, I, Paul Bosch gave me a really beautiful uh, Nikon camera one time. Oh, I hear it right there. That must be the film developing. What's that? Said your hair looks nice. Seasons beatings is something you name this show. I guess in this era, all the shows had to be named something as a way to tell them apart. This one went down December 17th, 1995. So as we're talking yesterday was the 25 year anniversary of the show. It's at the, you want to know what I remember about this show, Conrad, that it was in Hershey park, Pennsylvania. Yes, and you know what I did that day? You ate some chocolate. I went to the chocolate factory and the chocolate store that is connected to the Hershey Park. 
Because, see, at this time in my life, if you will, so I was I was going to be getting married uh, in April of the next year. All right. All right. So the Hershey Park Coliseum right next to the Hershey Park Coliseum is like the Hershey Museum. Right. And then like any good entrepreneur, you exit out that goddamn uh, Hershey Museum. And you go right into the motherfucking Hershey store. Oh, they got all kinds of different chocolate. They got the Reese's Pieces. They got the Reese's Cups. They got the Hershey. They got the Hershey with almonds. They got the Hershey with the Krispies. They got all kinds of Hershey shit. And so I like got some nice like Hershey uh, Christmas shit. Oh, I thought for sure you were going to say, and then I took it back and sold it to the boys because I'm an asshole. I did that too, but still. <laughs> well, well I, re- I got gifts. I'm a giving motherfucker. I never asked. That's what if- I do. That's what I do. I give. You do. You give me fudge every month. I do. I, uh, have you had the, have you had the, uh, the tiger, the tigers, uh, tiger butter yet? I don't even know what a tiger butter is. And no, oh, God damn. who's fucking calling now? Oh, is that commissioner Gordon or, or Vincent Kennedy? Oh shit. That's my phone. There don't, we go. Fix that shit. Did you just hang up on him. Yeah. Oh, well, Bruce is fired again, boys and girls. Dude, I may be the only fucking person left in the world that has a hard line in their house. I do too. How come I never fucking knew that? Well, because I stayed there last time. You didn't have a fuck. Oh yeah. We did have a bat phone. <laughs> That's right. Well, never mind. it's used for the intercom system and you got to have one. If you have an elevator, cause you don't want to get stuck in that motherfucker and not be able to tell nobody, you know? Yeah. Well, see, I don't have that problem. We can just go. Oh yes. Hey, yo, Amber. And then she should be here, like at the door in a second. You have the same number of stories in your house that I have in mine. You just no, not, not, that is not true. You have two in a basement. You got another one up no, there. No, I have two in a basement. You, uh, no bullshit. Then you have the other wing. You have the other fucking wing. See, you're that starting goes shit. Up, and that counts as an extra story. Nope. And and that wing is only ten thousand square feet, so I know it's small. You're telling stories. Hey, you I told the uh, main house. This what twenty four thousand square feet. By the way, speaking of houses, I told the uh, the Bischoffs who just hung out for a few days here in Huntsville that you painted your house that it used to be brown on brown on brown on brown, and they were like, "Really?" And I said, "Yeah, you painted it blue and white." And they both looked at me like I had flaming turds hung on my mouth. Like, how's that even possible? And then Eric just sort of curled his lip and said, "How does it look?" I said, "It looks fucking great. You should see the before and after." So you got to send them some pictures because you know they're not welcome in Stanford anymore. Ah, that's horse shit. You know what? That's fucking, that's a lie. Oh, your house isn't blue. No, they're welcome in my house anytime they want. Well, yeah, I didn't and, say that. Uh, Eric was going to come to my house and then he ended up at your house. Oh, yeah, now, that, now you let the secret, you have let the cat out of the bag. And now I'm back to fuck Eric Bischoff. Well, that's been the feeling in that zip code for a long time. Let's talk about in your house five. I wonder if Clint from Hershey. Was at this show? Yes, I was there. There were approximately seven thousand two hundred eighty-nine fans. That was how many I counted because I like to stand at the concession stand right there where the ticket counters where they come in, and I have a clicker that tells me exactly how many people come in, and then I I do that, and then I go down through the through the you know, the heavy sauce, and I multiply that times how many there were in the thing because then you multiply and then you divide before you go in to the slaver and the thing with the Hershey and the chocolate. And I came up with seven thousand two hundred eighty nine fans paid. By the way, I can tell. I uh, 
I, I'm really proud of I'm you. I'm going to add that to my clip. <laughs> Impersonation now. Conrad. I am I am really proud of you. What are these noises going on here tonight? That must have been your home phone again. No, it wasn't. That wasn't shit. Oh, shit, it was. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking loud in my headset. I'm really, uh, I'm really proud of you for at least opening the notes today because you just nailed 7,289 fans in attendance. The estimate for the live gate was around a hundred grand, but let's talk for a minute about how the show did on pay-per-view basically not good. Does 80,000 buys, which makes it the lowest drawing pay-per-view in WWF history. WrestleMania 11 did 325,000 buys. The very first in your house did 190. King of the Ring was 150. In your house two was back up to 170. SummerSlam did a very respectable 205. And then in your house three was 175. And then it whoo, plummeted for in your house four, 100,000 buys. Back up for Survivor Series, but not a ton, only 140,000. But this one here, 80,000 for in your house five. Is this just uh, oversaturation? Didn't have the right card. Nitro's really starting to catch fire. What's going on that makes you think this one is just the worst pay per view ever? I don't know. It was the worst pay per view ever. It's better than 75,000 buys. Well, you didn't have one of those yet. Well, still, it was better at that, that time than 75,000 buys. And, and just quite frankly, not enough people wanted to tune in and watch it. I guess my question is, and I've always been fascinated by 95 and I say that every time we cover 95, but it, you know, it feels like Vince is sort of spending his tires here a little bit. Did you feel like that at the time back in 95, if you could add context to the moment? I think when you, you know, you can go back and, and history's always with 2020 vision. I think if you've actually lived in it and been a part of it, um, you know, it was still you're you're coming off of everything. You're co- you're coming off of the fucking uh, steroid case. You're coming off of you know this newfound competition. You, we were in uncharted waters, and it was you're finding your way. You're you're getting through it, and things are changing. And you have to first of all, you have to figure out what's changing so that you can change with it and move along. More than anything. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happening the next night. And boy, I feel bad going into this because I know we're going to hurt some feelings, no matter what we say, uh, Medusa is a friend of the show, but the night after this show, the former Alundra blaze shows up on nitro with the WWF women's title belt and throws it in the garbage can. And she called herself Medusa saying she's always been Medusa shows the belt and throws it in the trash can and says, that's what she thinks of the WWF and their women's title. And she even says WWF by name. And she says now she's in WCW. She used to be a blaze, but she wanted to come where the big boys play. And now it's where the big girls play and dumps the title in a trash can. And that's something that we talked about as being a, um, a fear for Bret Hart in 1997. Of course, we know that didn't happen. But it did happen here in 95 and, you know, Medusa is probably, believe it or not, best known for this moment. And she has 
taking credit and said this was the first real shot in the Monday Night Wars. I think most would say it was the Lex Luger debut at, at Nitro. But she sort of recently started to say this is the beginning of the women's revolution. And people, some people online have been critical of that. It was a major moment on during the Monday night wars when in this era, there wasn't any major moment for the women. So it is cool in that regard, but on your side of the fence, being a WWF executive at the time, was this perceived as being a, a big deal? It was de- oh shit, man. It's definitely a blow. Fuck. Yeah. And you're, you're watching, you're seeing one of your championship belts on your competitor show and former champion dumping in a trash can. Yeah, that was a blow. It sucked. Um, and that, that hurt. And I think that when you go back and you look at monumental moments in the history of the Monday night wars, that's one, it's going to be one of the top five. It's not number one. Uh, I think that number one is probably, more than any, I give it to, to Razor the first time Razor showed up, Lex showing up, and, and Hogan's turn. But when you look at all of that, this was a big move. This was a big move, and it was a slap in the face, and, and it was a kick in the balls because didn't see that one coming. Should have, but didn't. I mean, in, in hindsight... How significant is it? Do you think in the Monday night wars, Meltzer would report that Vince McMahon found out about it from a technician early in the raw show and was stunned to the point that that's why he seemed so tired and distracted on the live show. And, and Meltzer was the technician that told him this because Meltzer was right there with Vince when he found out that's how he knows this information. Well, I'm asking how did Vince take it when he found I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't t- think, I don't know that a technician told him. Uh, I have no idea and I was there. So the fact that Meltzer would have that intimate exact technician that told him again, I can't, I can't take anything that Dave Meltzer says with any credibility whatsoever because he has less than zero credibility. If that's at all possible, if you can go deep down underneath the core into where the, the, the ice cold nothingness of the world is, Dave's about 40 feet below that as far as credibility goes. So I don't, I don't know how Vince found out. I, I, have, I really How did remember. Vince take it? I think that he, he was pretty – I think he was more pissed off at himself and just the, um, the do you call it the, the process, the procedure or whatever the hell that wasn't done with Medusa being out of contract and not getting everything back from her. Um, there, there's so many things that could have been done better. And I think that Vince takes all of that personally and puts it on himself. So, you know, he, he doesn't matter where, where the breakdown came or what the breakdown was. Uh, I'm sure he took it very personal and, and just felt like, you know, son of a bitch, you know, we should have been better and we should have been better. Should have been better about making sure that you had your property back or should have been better. So there wasn't any regret about you know, moving away from the women's division or not doing business with WWE. I mean, with well, Medusa. you tell me, tell me how, how WCW capitalized on that because I don't remember them doing shit with the women after that. I don't remember them capitalizing on Medusa at, at all after that. I mean, she was around, but no, they didn't do much. 
Yeah, well, okay, tell me how they capitalize on it. Because, again, I don't think that there were enough females at the time to to really have a big division, and it was something that we moved away from at the time. And there wasn't, there sure as hell wasn't the caliber of athlete that would come along 20 years later. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there was regret for that. I just think it was a change in business philosophy. Talk to me a little bit about where the heat goes. Do you guys recognize, ah, oh, this is that Eric Bischoff, fuck him. Or are you guys really upset at Medusa as well? There was a lot of that to go around, but you know, here's the thing. When you, when you look at Medusa, Medusa was doing what someone told her to do and she was going out. Medusa now is working for another company and that other company is asking her to do this. And she did it. So it, it's, you, you got to give, in my opinion, you got to give the credit to, to Eric or whoever it was that made that call for her to do it. It was, it was a hell of a strike. So, you know, kudos to them for making a hell of a strike and having the balls to do it. Let's, uh, let's recap exactly what Meltzer wrote. The bombshell came on the heels of a week filled with rumors and signings. Michelle's WWF contract expired on December 13th. And it was well known within the WWF. She was negotiating with WCW and her contract wasn't renewed. So technically she was fired. JJ Dillon sent a letter midweek to all Japan women, canceling the blaze versus Aja Kong match that was scheduled for the Royal rumble, which we know she said wasn't the case, uh, saying blaze's contract was going to expire and not be renewed. This decision had to have been made several days earlier as when Kong squash match with Asari on December 11th announced well, you just skipped that first name. Didn't you uh, Chaparita? Okay. Very good. Uh, announcers, Vince McMahon and Jerry, uh, Lawler played it down and never once mentioned Alundra's name, which was a giveaway that the women's division was being abandoned. Uh, several WWF wrestlers have been under the impression that blaze was going to be dumped after the rumble. Anyway, we had ser- heard several reports from Japan that Kong would be given the title in the January match. Boy, I know I'm going to get you fired up here because you really tried to downhill a few weeks ago talking about this, where you said, no, it was Bertha Faye, even though all the magazines and promos and everything for Royal rumble said Aja Kong on it. I understand that your point was Aja Kong couldn't communicate the way Bertha Faye could. I get that, but I think you were misremembering it. Do you want to back up on that a little bit and acknowledge that maybe you misremembered it and Aja Kong was going to be the opponent at Royal rumble? She might have been the opponent at Royal Rumble. She may have been. But to put the championship on her and go with Aja Kong, that wasn't something that we were going to do. And it was, you know, from Aja Kong being a hell of a fucking athlete, ungoddamn believable. But it wasn't going to be long term. And she wasn't going to leave Japan long term either. So it, it was a variety of reasons that wasn't going to happen. And. Frankly, yeah, you know, when you look at, at Rhonda Singh and Bertha Fay, uh, she had a shitload of personality. And that's, if you're going to go somewhere, that was the direction to go. Not Aja for long term. So let's talk about this match. I want to mention to everybody, go out of your way to watch this. December 11th, it's on Raw. So go click Raw, 1995, December 11th. Watch the Sasha Kong match because she does like a 
a backhand punch, I guess is what they called it in the observer. She broke the lady's nose. How about that? Well, that's a great worker. No, I'm just saying quite the segment. And I guess this is sort of the end. You're going to tell me that's a great worker to break someone's nose. No, I'm just saying it might be fun for our listeners to watch. You don't have to get hot about it. Well, I I do get hot about it whenever I go, oh my God, this great worker, this great worker. I I didn't say that at all. Other people have Conrad. I thought we were talking about what me and you say. No, I'm saying that these other people that you quote as factual historians, we're talking about what a great worker it is that breaks someone's nose. You know, the 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 idea behind the business was to make the make it look believable, but not get hurt doing it. And then, so anyway, and the the business has evolved. Okay. Don't get hot. Now you're hot. I'm just listening. Now you're hot. So let's fast forward again. We're talking about the week, um, after the Asha Kong match. So the day of Alundra dropping the uh, title in the trash can, Nitro gets a 2.7 and raw gets a 2.3. You're coming off a pay-per-view the night after a pay-per-view and Nitro wins. That's gotta be disappointing, right? Yeah. It's disappointing anytime that the unsuccessful writing. So yeah, definitely disappointing. I want to mention at the end of the syndicated superstar show that same weekend, they had Jim Ross hinting that the ultimate warrior might be returning to the WWF. It was never mentioned on action zone, which was taped later in the week, nor at this in your house pay-per-view or raw the following night. And Meltzer would say, we've been unable to get any confirmation on it other than the rumor mill amongst the wrestlers that Hellwig would be returning as a regular starting at the Royal rumble, but nobody seemed to know for sure. And he wasn't backstage at the show, despite all kinds of rumors going around that he was, it's possible he's coming in or given his track record that he agreed to come in early in the week and the deal had already fallen through before it was broadcast, or it's possible that the WWF was following WCW's lead and teasing him at the last minute as a fake hot shot angle to get a last second curiosity for the pay-per-view. Of course, we know he is going to come back at WrestleMania 12. He's famously told the story. Of going to meet him out there. And I think Jr. was there and Linda McMahon was there and he's slinging F bombs and talking about distrucity and all of that. Would that have happened in December or would that have happened in the early part of 96? No, that happened in 96 when we actually went out there, but it was, you know, during this time that you're looking and, uh, we knew we were negotiating with warrior and looking at warrior to come back and trying to figure out what that was going to look like. And it wasn't from the standpoint of limited dates, but but kind of looking at Warrior as an attraction and not overusing him and trying to see, okay, if he's going to come back and you're going to utilize him, what's the best way to do it? And the best way, in our opinion, was not to not to use this guy uh, every single night in the live events and maybe not every pay-per-view, but use them judiciously. Um, and it was, it was unique thinking in how we had, we had thought about the business in the past because normally you sign someone, it's like, okay, let's go to work. And if they're a draw, you get them out there at every show. And this was trying to look at, an Andre the Giant type attraction with Warrior and utilize him when you needed him. 
let's, uh, let's talk about somebody else who you did need stone cold, Steve Austin. Well, okay. He's not stone cold and he's not even stunning. He's the ringmaster and Meltzer would say he's backstage at the pay-per-view. He's going to debut at raw the very next night and he's given the million dollar belt and he's using the sleeper as a finisher. Meltzer writes in a funny moment, he started doing jumping jacks while wearing the belt and the belt fell off him. It's, uh, it's an interesting time for his career. He did a great promo that aired just a couple of days after the pay-per-view on ECW where he says he spent four years waiting for a world title shot. And then he got it in two weeks and lost them both and admitted that he came into ECW out of shape and he didn't rehab his arm. Said if he'd smart, if he was smart, he'd call up Eric Bischoff and tell him he deserved to be an announcer of the year and kiss his ass and get his job back. So he could go back and sit around and get a big paycheck because he's disgusted with his career over the past four years, really good sort of shoot style promo that shows you what he's capable of when he's not handed a silly script and just sort of does his thing and lets his real personality shine through. But these early days of Steve Austin, long before he's stone cold, you're involved in this segment too, with the million dollar man and the belt and the sleeper. What can you tell us about it? You know, obviously he got a, he got, a, got in the game and it, and it clearly worked out, but it's hard to imagine seeing this first scene that this is going to wind up becoming what it is. Yeah. And probably the best thing that ever happened to Steve in his career. And if you were to ask him, he would probably tell you that he'd like to thank Eric Bischoff for making that decision to fire him at that time, because it did get Steve off of his ass and made Steve motivated to go somewhere else and do something else. So no doubt about it. Austin always had it in him to be a top guy. If you were to ask pretty much anyone who had been in the ring with Steve Austin prior to this and anyone that had even watched Steve from afar, there was a twinkle in Steve's eye and and you saw that there was no doubt Steve had the ability to be not just a top guy, but the top guy for whatever reason didn't happen. Um, Steve coming in now, you know, after the stuff that Steve did in ECW and his personality got out. And I think that for the underground folks that watched ECW at the time, it was like, holy shit, you know, you got to see this because Steve was just uh, freestyling, as you like to say, on Eric Bischoff in WCW. And it, it got kind of a holy shit deal. But Steve coming in as the ringmaster, it was uh you know, a wrestler's gimmick is how we looked at it and looking for something a little different with Steve, but wanted to bring him in with his own championship right up top uh, with the million dollar championship with DiBiase, give him instant credibility, get him into the mix on top right away because we knew that once Steve got there, that he would deliver and that you didn't need to have the normal build, if you will, because you put it with a, guy like DiBiase right off the top. And it gave him instant credibility. What'd you think of his opening segment with brother love? I thought it was excellent. I I thought it was fantastic. Um, you know, originally laying that thing out, Vince didn't want Steve to say anything and wanted DiBiase to do all the talking, uh, speaking to Paul Heyman that day, Paul is the one it said, Bruce, put a microphone in his hands and, and let him talk. So Steve asked me during the day, says, hey, I've got something I'd like to say. And, you know, can I 
finish up and, and do this promo in the middle of the deal. I said, well, Steve, we're live. And uh, if you got a spot in there, go for it. And Steve went for it. So I thought, I thought it was excellent. The whole, you know, he tapped into the brother love and put your hand on the TV and, you know, have your hand touch my hand and all that shit. And I think that when people talk about Steve's Steve Austin's career, that they overlook that first promo because that first promo did give you glimpses of the stone cold character coming down the road and told you this guy can go and he's going to be a big star. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. Let's talk about how business is. Uh, the biggest shows were December 8th in Pittsburgh. There's 5,300 fans there paying 75 grand. The next day they're in Chicago, only 3,200 paying, but it's 80 grand. And Meltzer would say, while the numbers aren't impressive on the surface, considering how loaded the shows were, when you factor in how horrible the weather was supposed to be in both cities, it's really not that bad. The other shows on the fifth in Ontario were 2,200 fans paying 38 grand Canadian, which is about the price of a happy meal here in America. And then on December 6th in Niagara falls, it was 3000 fans paying 45,000, but in Clarion PA on the seventh, there's only 1500 fans. there, pretty measly gate, just 20 grand. All of these shows had undertaker and Bret Hart on top with the undertaker getting cheered very heavily in all cities. They did change the finish up doing lots of double count outs. Some of them that went as long as 27 minutes. I guess it's worth noting, even in this era, you guys have the reputation for having the better main events when compared to WCW. Will that be fair to say? Hold on. God damn it. And we're back talking 1995 WWF, <laughs> which I know that Bruce is so excited about. Hey, look, look, we got good main events on top. We got an undertaker. We got Bret Hart. That's a much better main event than you're getting from any WCW house show in this era, but house show business is still struggling. Uh, do you think this is one of those, um, the business is cyclical type situations? I, I do. Uh, and I think it was, and I also would put the live events up against anybody else's live events. Um, especially at the time, I think they were damn good. And that's one thing that our audience did always have to say about us was the fact that you go to a live event and we delivered. So they were good. And sometimes, you know, business takes a dip and I think it is cyclical. Uh, Meltzer would write an army soldier was charged on December 6th, with the beating of Sean Michaels on the October 13th incident outside of that Syracuse nightclub. Douglas Griffin is 23 was charged with second degree assault in the beating and will face a court appearance on the 14th of December. Griffith stationed at Fort drum, us army base in Watertown, New York is being accused of beating Michaels senseless. Griffin is alleged to be one of four or five servicemen who attacked Michaels in a wild brawl that involved approximately nine servicemen and three pro wrestlers, John Michaels, Davy boy Smith, and the one, two, three kid. According to the police report, Michaels was passed out in the front seat of the car parking lot of a nightclub when he was pulled out of the car and had the door slammed on his head and his head slammed into the car several times before Smith was able to get out of the back seat of the car and give him a measure of protection. And finally the bouncers from the club chased the assailants away. Initially, both Michaels and the WWF declined to press charges in the case. 
despite going on TV and saying the opposite, perhaps because of the fear that if the incident gained a lot of publicity, they would face embarrassing publicity that Smith was out with Michaels and the two were feuding and in fact, saved him from a worse beating a few weeks back though. Sean changed his mind and pressed charges. I've always wondered, was there an internal discussion about, well, we should think about this because if we press charges, it's one of those chic Duggan things. Again, we got to think about that. Was that still applicable in 95 or not so much? I don't think so much. You know, it was a different time and it was a different place. And I think it just chalks up to during that different time and different place, having a, a change of heart and change of mind. So kind of vacillating back and forth. And that happens all the time. Let's talk for a minute about the Shawn Michaels injury angle. Since Sean is going to miss out at several important pay-per-view events or several important events, including this pay-per-view rather. They do a segment on raw with a guy billed as Sean's doctor acting as if the injuries are so severe. He may never return to wrestling. Dr. Unger is a real doctor from San Bernardino who's been around the WWF for years. So I'm pretty sure he's not Michael's personal physician, but he's a guy who likes to pal around and be friends with the wrestlers and will go on TV and help get the angle over. In other words, the entire segment was a work, a very well done work, by the way. And the next week on raw, they had a Shawn Michaels interview where he appeared to be fine and his usual self, and then freaked out when Todd Pettengill brought up that his career could possibly be over. Definitely a more realistic touch. That's all from the observer. You guys would get some criticism about how you would ultimately play this out, but having a doctor go on TV, I mean, that's just good shit. Is it not? Sure it is. And so at first Meltzer says, got a guy playing a doctor. They say, oh, well, the guy playing the doctor actually is a doctor, Dr. Unger. I wonder if he actually has ever had someone that has any logic or sense. Oh God, I'm so tired of you beating on Meltzer. I'm so tired of the inaccuracies and his dribbling nonsense. Can we just talk about the fucking show and you just set aside your Meltzer hate? I'm commenting on his comments that you brought up for comment for me to no, comment. No, I thought I, I complimented you and I said, Hey, it's pretty cool when you can get a doctor on TV like this, right? That's good shit. Yes, because it was because it was true with the injuries that he did have. There were some doctors that, uh, probably would have felt that he wasn't, wasn't the best idea for him to come back, uh, during that time frame. but he was medically cleared to come back. I want to mention replays. Um, there's a nitro replay that everybody's familiar with and you guys at least tried a Thursday raw replay and Meltzer would say the Thursday raw replay has been canceled. It was a catch 22. Anyway, the WWF never plugged the show for fear. It might hurt the Monday numbers, uh, for a slight bit for people who would watch nitro and then watch the replay three nights later with no plugs. The ratings weren't competitive with what USA wants in prime time. So now it's gone. Did they come to you guys and say, Hey, we really want to try this. And you sort of felt like you had to acquiesce, even though you really didn't want to. Well, you know, it it was again, when you have a partner and you're working with the network, you try to, you want them to be a part of it just as, as much as, as you possibly can. And if they're supporting something, so yeah, it's an experiment and it's, an opportunity to possibly garner more audience and possibly a different audience. So why not try it? 
It's just, yeah, it's, it's something that both both sides talked about and looked into. And from network's point of view, hey, if we can get another run in a show, then great. Let's talk about the end of Survivor Series. We, we just talked about this show not that long ago, but it makes the newsletter here that you guys were fielding complaints from people because Brett and Diesel had used chairs at Survivor Series, which is silly. I can't believe anybody would give a shit. But then that Diesel mouthed the word motherfucker at Survivor Series. Um, and Meltzer would say they're trying to do a balancing act between making it a rougher product, but not alienating any of their audience or sponsors. And this isn't going to be easy. No doubt about that. It's going to be an issue for a long time where you're trying to make sure that you have an entertaining show, but you don't want to alienate anybody, but it is a pay-per-view like what the fuck it is. And it was a late night pay-per-view. And I think that regardless, there are going to be those that will always argue the family aspect of it. Um, look, you're trying some things and, and I, I'm sure that the first time that uh, Dennis Fran showed his ass on network television, that that was a huge outcry of holy shit. You know, they're showing someone's ass on primetime network television. It's you take steps, motherfucker, probably too far. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But again, you have to take, you have to take steps and see where those boundaries are and where people's comfort zone is. Now you can you can see, you know, hell, you could you used to not be able to even say hell. You know, there was a time uh, in my lifetime where people couldn't sit, couldn't be in the same bed. A male and a female couldn't be in the same bed, even if they were married on TV, without one foot touching the ground. Mm. When you you know you go back and look at standards and practices and and things, so. You know, you grow, you try to do things differently. Might have pushed the envelope a little bit too much, but we had we had pushed the envelope the other way so much, too, trying to, to be a little bit more sanitary that when you go back to it, people automatically jump on it and go, oh, look at what they're doing. So you, you walk that line and you try to balance as best you possibly can. Let's, uh, let's talk about something else that's making the news here that I can't believe we've never really talked about. Uh, McMahon was at the wedding of Richard Glover, an ESPN executive who was a former Titan VP and talked about Bruce Pritchard being the key force in booking that brother love would be getting a huge push and they're going to introduce a hot looking girl as sister love. And there was some speculation that it might be ECW's Beulah McGillicuddy. Um, said that this is the rumor because it's hinted at that this person has posed for penthouse. And of course, in real life, the person who played Beulah McGillicuddy was indeed in penthouse. Let's talk about sister love. What do you remember about this? I was an idea that was floated around at one point and you know, um, I thought wasn't crazy about it from the standpoint of trying to be a talent and do both. Um, but it was floated out there. Yeah, it definitely was. And to have a really beautiful sidekick that would be sister love that you kind of wonder about the relationship between brother and sister, if you will, and how much love and how much they truly do love each other. Um, 
It was thrown out there, and then uh, it was quickly thrown out of there. Well, why, why don't you think it was a hit? Why did we not go forward with it? I, you know, I, I don't think that came up with the right story. I think we could have come up with the right story. I just thought that there were better ways to tell the story than, than with brother love. And, and it was, it was two non-working individuals, talent. right? Yeah. Two non-working individuals that would have taken up, you know, a lot of that time. Is, is this just freestyling the whole penthouse pet thing or was Beulah seriously considered? I don't know if she was a penthouse pet. Uh, does it say that she was going to be a, get a feature in penthouse if she did the brother love thing? No, she had already done it. I mean, I get, okay. uh, fuck all the penthouse pet stuff. Did you have someone in mind? I feel like I'm doing a podcast with Eric I Bischoff. Actually, I, I think the Beulah was somebody that we did consider. Why don't you think if you considered her for this, I mean, did you consider for other stuff in the future and the timing wasn't right or her situation wasn't right or I don't know. You know, I, I look and, and I was going through Paul Lee. So who oh, knows? okay. Got it. Beulah is not interested. <laughs> Let's talk about the show itself. Bruce, you watched this for the first time in 25 years this week. Uh, it got 48%. Uh, thumbs up 48% thumbs down, uh, 3.3% thumbs in the middle. So now basically now based on those numbers, wouldn't they all basically be thumbs in the middle? If you got 48 up 48 down, then kind of, aren't they just like in the middle pointing at each other? They're docking. I don't know what that means. Don't Google it. Uh, would you give this a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I would give it a solid. Solid? solid show dog solid you know solid dog the solid uh, the dark match is savio vega beating bob Backlund. Meltzer described it as dreadful gave it half a star i guess it's not really an in your house match if it doesn't open with a savio vega match the first match on the show itself razor ramon and marty Gennetti beating the one two three kid and sid what an odd team that is one, two, three kid and Sid. Uh, it happens when Ramon pins Sid after a bulldog off the middle rope. Goldust is going to watch the match at ringside and talk about how masculine Ramon is and then give Todd Pettengill a note, which turned into a love letter. Uh, Meltzer would say this match was a disappointment as Janetti's work has been slow and sluggish since returning and Sid was pretty bad. The match just never got going. Although there was good heat for Ramon versus kid. He gave it a star and a quarter. A lot to unpack here. Let's talk about Sid and the kid. I mean, that could have been a fun team name. And I guess they sort of offset each other pretty nicely. You've got a lot of acrobats and a lot of uh, martial arts and fancy high flying moves. So then you got big brooding choke slams. Yeah, the only thing was you didn't see a whole lot of that fly high flying, just goddamn whizzerking all over the place there. Um, Sid and Kid, you know, Sid and the Kid, that would have been the name. If we'd only thought of that then as is the tag team, then fuck, it would have been tag team champions and would have had a whole completely different world around us as we sit here today. Big Sid Udi is that Gilbert used to say, ooh, it's Sid Udi. Um, you know, it was decent, but it wasn't anything to write home about and go, holy shit. Did you see that match? It was okay. 
and especially when you consider the talent involved in it, uh, at least with Razor, Marty, and Kid, and then just Sid from sheer star power and being a monster. But it was, for my purposes, I thought it was just okay. Nothing great. Let's talk about uh, the whole Razor thing. We've talked about this before in our Razor episode, and I think in our Goldust episode. This was like the original plan of where we were heading with Goldust and Razor, and I think we wanted to probably stretch this out a little longer. How far in were you with this before Razor said, hey, man, not comfortable? Well, at this point, you know, we were still in the, in the early in the early makings of it, and I don't, you know, I, I never got if, Razor had an issue with Dustin or just the gold dust character or the way that the personal issue was going to work out. Um, but Razor just didn't, you know, I don't think Razor was ever really into it, but he was in the beginning. Okay. You know, man, I'm willing to try and, and, and we'll, we'll see where this goes and shit but I never felt that he really had his heart into it. Never embraced it to the point of, yeah, man, I'm going to go out and get this guy over and we're going to have a hell of, we're going to have a hell of a hot personal issue and do some crazy shit. I don't think Razor was ever at that point at all. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, Marty Gennetti. Meltzer, <laughs> Meltzer points out, you forgot to turn your mic off and just cough right tried. into it. And when I coughed, I looked over and it wasn't blinking. It's kind I of did try. I push, I mashed the button, and it's a button. It's a button on top there that was hitting, well, and then I was coughing. I wasn't even there. Uh, Marty Janetti looking it, a little sluggish. It didn't, and I didn't do the thing, and I had the in my throat. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's move on. Now I'm just gonna fucking cough. I ain't even gonna fucking try no more. Can we talk about Marty Janetti? Is that possible? Sure. Was it's written in the observer here. He's slowing down. Is he just partying too much? Has he got some injuries going on? You know, we've talked about the hokey pokey that is Marty Gennetti a lot here on the show. And I don't know, chat me up on where you were with him in 95. You know, I think that at this point, I think Marty saw Sean's career going in one direction and his career going in the other direction. So it was I don't think it was a, a matter of Marty slowing down more than it was uh, an attitude of Marty that, uh, fuck, you know, Sean's going to do his thing. And Marty almost accepting or relegating himself to the role of oh, I'm the other guy. I'm I'm Marty Janetti, which has become kind of like a Munson in Kingpin. You know, oh, he was the Marty Janetti of the team. And. That always dumbfounded me because Marty was a fucking excellent worker and, you know, an incredible part of the Rockers team. Yes, Sean went on. I guess it's because Sean went on to a lot of fame and fortune and Marty didn't. But I always thought Marty was incredibly talented and and a great fucking talent. Here, I think it was more his attitude than anything that was kind of showing in his ring work. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next moment in the show here. Cause this is quite a moment. Meltzer would say at this point, the show, a communication breakdown somewhere ring announcer, Manny Garcia announced that coming from Knoxville, Tennessee, nature boy, buddy Rydell 
So one would assume that Landell was getting a new name and about to debut, but then Jerry Lawler cuts him off and goes to the ring for a surprise, which would surely be Landell, but instead it was Jeff Jarrett. Lawler gave Jarrett a plaque commemorating a gold CD and Jarrett announced he'd be in the rumble. Meltzer would say Jarrett got no pop at all. When the segment was over, there were light cheers and light boos, but no real reaction. Many have now forgotten just how great the video and the Michaels was Michaels. Easy for me to say the Michaels match was until the very end of his first WWF tenure. Jarrett was actually the least over wrestler in the company of all the guys who got a push. He did a good job, but the segment didn't get much of a reaction in hindsight. He killed all his momentum when he went home after that second in your house. Did he not? In my opinion, yes. I think that Jeff was never hotter than at the peak with Shawn Michaels and the whole uh, lip-syncing controversy and what have you. And we will never know what would have happened on the other side. But I do think that that was the one pivotal moment where I think that Jeff would have gotten over to being that nasty shit heel and have people actually care about him. Never got to see it. What what do you think happened with this communication gaffe and the announcer here? Manny fucked up. I actually very vividly remember this because Manny fucked up and it was like, God damn it. So you got Jerry that was going to interrupt it anyway. Let Jerry bust his ass for fucking it up. But now that I think about it, I like that old buddy Rydell, you know, buddy Rydell. Could like change business on nature boy, buddy Rydell. Well, he's here. Ahmed Johnson is going to beat buddy Landell in 42 seconds. Don't know what took him so long with the tiger driver, which is now called the Pearl river plunge. Dean Douglas came out and said he was scratched from the show by the doctor with a bad back, but he's bringing in Landell as his replacement. Landell came out to Ric Flair's old WWF music. And Landell jumps Johnson, who didn't sell anything. And after the match, Johnson spaked Douglas with a paddle. Boy, Vince McMahon is in love with some Ahmed Johnson here, is he not? Yeah, there were big, you know, there were big plans for Ahmed Johnson, and with him coming in, Ahmed had an unfucking canny animal charisma. I mean, that some bitch just fucking oozed charisma when he came out and looked like he would kill you. So very athletic, could do some shit, did not know his own strength, was not the greatest worker in the world by any stretch of the imagination. However, he was exciting and he was unpredictable. So those were things that you could harness. We were hopefully going to be able to mold some of the unpredictability about him, at least in the ring. Um, Ahmed had the look. Ahmed was one of those guys that was on a short list of I could see him as WWE champion. And no, he was never promised that, um, but he was one of those guys that internally we looked at and down the line, could you get to Ahmed as WWE champion? Yes. Who Not else was that? Who else was advocating for Ahmed besides Vince? I know Bill Watts was a fan. Feels like Jim Ross would have been a fan. Yeah. I think, I think everybody was a, Michael Hayes. Good Lord. Oh my God. Uh, big fan of Ahmed. He thought this is his new JYD. Yeah, Michael. I mean, Michael was a big fan. Michael had worked with Ahmed in Dallas. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So uh, Michael had worked with the very uh, green and raw Ahmed and saw a lot of potential in him as well. And Michael was singing his praises as he came in. 
talk to me about buddy Landale. I gotta admit, I kind of didn't even remember he was ever here. And then I saw this pay-per-view back and I'm thinking, well, that went about like I planned or hoped, or maybe that's why I don't remember. My goodness. 42 now seconds. You can say you've seen it. <laughs> buddy Landale was always known as a very capable performer, but perhaps behind the scenes just had some substance stuff going on. He did some great promos here in 95. Uh, he was promoting a match with Shawn Michaels, not in the WWF, but as a favor in the territories and smoky mountain. And I love that promo and I love the story, but by 95, it just feels like maybe you guys aren't willing to roll the dice on him. You know, I knew buddy from buddy's like first few months in the wrestling business when he came in and we were, uh, in mid South. Hold on. God damn it. Okay. We're back and we're talking about buddy Landell and you're so excited. <laughs> and it's a great day. Oh, God damn. Hey, motherfucker. But buddy, <laughs> buddy had come into mid South, man. And he was, he was fucking buddy Landell. He had brown hair and shit and everything. Nice fucking, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not calm, humble, very humble kid. And, you know, just got, Hey buddy, how you doing, man? You know, the next time I, I see buddy, he's got the bleach blonde hair and all this shit. And he's uh, the nature boy, buddy Landell. And he's a flare fucking ripoff. And I think that anytime, look, I don't know anybody with the exception of Ric Flair, probably <laughs> that ripped off. You know, another gimmick that way, a blatant ripoff of a gimmick. You know, Ric Flair ripped off Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. And to the modern era, Ric Flair is the, the original Nature Boy. So anybody that takes it from there, they're ripping off Ric Flair. And that's what Buddy was doing. And it was a poor man's version of Ric Flair. It's kind of like when Tatanka got into the Million Dollar Corporation and, and he talked about it. He goes, yeah, I've got my suits from Montgomery Ward. I got my shoes from Floor Shine. And it was like, he's going through all this shit. We, and we gave him like all the stuff. And I came back and said, seriously, dude, your shoes are from Floor Shine? Because fuck, man, these were expensive. They were like $49. I said, yeah, I, I get that. But it's like, you could have gone Gucci. You could have gone Ferragamo. You could have gone any place else other than the fucking shoe store that's in the mall that has the $49 specials. <laughs> so anyway, Buddy Landell was just a fucking ripoff of, of Rick. And I don't know that, that anybody ever took Buddy seriously because he was a parody. And Buddy could talk. But I remember Buddy's first main event was in Houston, Texas. Against Super Sock Jose Lothario. And Buddy is cutting promos. And and the boys, good goddamn man. Buddy was bragging about how, hey baby, that's right. I'm I'm main event. I'm main event, baby. That's right. Sam Houston Coliseum Friday night, baby. I'm main event. And he'd he'd just like tore everybody up for all week long. That buddy, I'm main event, baby. I'm main event. And I think it was one of the uh at the time, I think it was the worst house that year, and it may have been the worst house all year um, with Buddy on top with Jose. And, and I'll never forget, that's where Buddy came up with the, you know, hey, let me tell you something, Jose Lothario, you taco Tito. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I said it. I said it. That's right. 
And so everybody started mimicking them. Anytime you just say something stupid, you'd follow it up with, that's right, I said it. Oh, we got to do that more often here on the show. Well, yeah, I just said it, didn't I? That's right, you said it. That's right, I said it, bitch. So (laughs) that was Buddy Landell. So now, fast forward here to to 1995. And Buddy, uh, you know, Cornette was was working with us and stuff. And, you know, rock and roll. Come in, done a couple shots and different shit. And old Nature Boy Buddy Landell thought, well, fuck, man. Is there something we could get out of of the Nature Boy? But it was shortly after this that that, uh, Buddy had the slip and fall, I think, in Philadelphia. And his career was over, and I think he sued the hotel and somebody else and all this other shit. But um, had a lot of talent. I just think sometimes that talent was misplaced. If you would have been any other gimmick, do you think it would have turned out any better or different? You know, Buddy was the guy that he was the friend that popped off with the big guy behind him Mm. that got in all the fights, but had the big guy fight his fights over his mouth with the right sidekick, buddy Landell was money. Are you saying he did that in real life or that would have been a great chicken shit heel gimmick for him? Would have been a great chicken shit heel gimmick. If buddy really would have embraced it. And buddy did with butch Reed. Hmm. And and it kind of was that way in real life, a little bit with him and Butch, because it, it was like uh, he would he would he would pop off to people because he knew he had Butch's backup, and people would take one look at Buddy and go like, "Yeah, I'm fucking," kidding. and then they look over at Butch, and Butch would just kind of glare at him, and nobody wants to fuck with Butch Reed. No, I give shit who you are. Well, the Steiner brothers, maybe. Yeah. They didn't fuck with Ron, and why's that? Ron's a badass motherfucker. He's unfuckwithable. <laughs> what? Unfuckwithable. He is unfuckwithable. Okay, so let's talk about this uh this commentary. Vince Lawler and Jeff Jarrett are arguing with Jarrett saying, He don't wrestle fair. And Vince says Lawler is afraid to interview Ahmed, so then of course he goes to interviews Johnson. And he begins by saying he wants to have a word with the teacher's pest. And double J and he both say they aren't impressed. Lawler says Jarrett lettered in football. And when Ahmed lettered, he had to get the coach to read it to him. And Ahmed's interview is a real treasure. You got to go out of your way to see it. This might be the only time he doesn't start a promo by saying, first of all, he calls Jarrett an achy, breaky heart. wannabe. that actually gets a pop. Unbelievably. He calls him a fake urban cowboy. He looks at Lawler and looks legitimately hot and stumbles through. Let me tell you something. You have one more time to ever get in my face again, talking about you understand that you understand. I'm going to make your boy. I'm going to make you something you never, ever thought. And people are with it. And then somehow it works. Jarrett breaks the framed album over the back of Johnson's head. He swings again with the glass to break it. And then Jarrett says, King, get him a chair. Lawler holds up a chair as Ahmed is rammed into it face first. Jarrett swings once again on the back, pretty standard. But he hits Ahmed in the face with the seat of the chair and Vince screams. Oh no. Um, it's pretty confusing here. And a couple of these are some pretty stiff looking chair shots. What do you remember about this mess of a segment? 
Well, it was a mess, but like you said, at the same time, people were in Ahmed. Yeah, they were. They were in Ahmed. They believed in him because they believed his shit looked real because a lot of it was real. And, <laughs> you know, say say what you will about Jeff. Jeff. Jeff would bring a chair. Jeff would bring it when it was time and could hang in there with just about anybody. So I actually enjoyed it. Thought it was good. It was one of those kind of, you know, vicious, nice, solid, holy fuck moments and a little different than than what they had seen. And Ahmed was a big, believable son of a bitch. The next match begins with us zooming out on the prolapsed asshole of a pig. It's the hog pen, which is in the middle of the audience. A lot of fans are seated next to a bunch of nasty hogs. Make your own jokes here. Uh, lots to unpack here on this. Whose fucking idea was the hog pen match on a fuck you. That's a great, you got a goddamn hog farmer. Okay. So it was your idea. Got it. You had a hog farmer and you had a guy from Greenwich, Connecticut, which they ain't never had. No, I bet you they ain't even got no hog on their table at Christmas. Well, mama cooked the breakfast with no hog, as you know, I, I know, but I'm just saying that it was. You know, the, the, the two extremes from the opposite ends kind of meeting in the middle in the farmer's hog pen. You going to chat me up here about this idea? I, I thought it was a great idea. It was, again, you know, you, you had through the years, you go back in the pictorial guide to wrestling. Uh, I believe it was 1967 that the book was released. And you look at some of the, the unique matches that had taken place over time. And, and I remember Paul Bosch in Houston would, would always have some unique matches. There was a bathtub match where they took a big bathtub and put a bathtub in the middle of the ring. From there, they had the loser has to wash a jackass with Tony Bourne's dad um, and, and Danny McShane and, and loser on uh, Irish Danny McShane on uh, St. Patrick's Day, the loser of the match gets painted green. And they had the buckets of paint and had to paint the loser green. You had matches held in snow pitch. You had matches held in mud. What, you know, trying to combine a lot of that is why not have build an actual hog pen with hogs in it and have the match there? Where else? I mean, uh, Different guys have their their matches. You know, you have a hell in a cell match. You you have a <laughs> you know, maybe a dog collar chain match. Well, this goddamn hog pen match where Henry Godwin is at home. It's hilarious. It's hilarious to me that you <laughs> just legitimately tried to compare a hog pen match to a hell in a cell. Hey, same concept. You're locked inside of a fucking pen. Can't get out. <laughs> You're in there with a bunch of fucking hungry hogs. You can't be hungry, hungry hogs. You can't get out. You can't get out, man. When you're in a hog pen and you're in like about three feet of mud, where are you going to go? Here's the thing. When you say can't get out, this is at, can't get out. This it's is locked. at best a four foot structure that you could just step right over. No, it was at least five feet. Well, then Hunter's seven feet tall, which you yeah. knew, I guess you've known that for years. Um, now listen, I don't know the full story, but I know there has got to be a story about these hogs and Owen Hart and Vince McMahon. 
No, I wasn't involved. But, you know, you go back and I, Jesus Christ, that gash on the back of Hunter's back was absolutely ugly. And you saw that scar for years, probably still very prevalent. But early in the match, Hunter got busted open on the damn uh, pin in the match. And then he's taking these bumps and all this dirt. And, and poop. And just everything else. We're like, oh, God damn, we got to get that cleaned out bad as soon as he gets back here. Um, but at the end of the night, you know, you got your you got your pigs out there. And they, they was working pigs. Wait, wait. Whoa, whoa. Huh? What is a working pig? They're working pigs. They they work with you and shit. They did spots and everything. They work down there at the fucking flea market. What's your favorite hog spot? Ah, the the one with the tail, hmm. the little curly cute shit, and then they go wee wee. Who is the best worker of the of the hogs here? Ah, Piggly. So the Wiggly family. What? Bruce, can you tell us the story about Vince McMahon and the goddamn <laughs> so, hogs? End of the night. And we're in Hershey and they had the, they had the side entrance and all this stuff, which kind of went out and it went out uh, to a, like a driveway area and all that shit there. So we had the, the truck backed up there where the hog farmer was going to take all of his hogs at the end of the thing, right? So you have to build a track for the pigs and you have to basically put fences along the line so that when you go in and it's like, you know, come on, biggie, see you know, come on, come on. And you go and you get the pigs and when one starts running, the other ones kind of run behind them and they, they run out and you have a narrow little path for them to, uh, to go in All right, and we're back. And goddamn, we're having so much fun talking about 95. It's such a great day to be alive. And uh, you were telling us about how the hog pen has been constructed. There's like a little narrow piece to get them all through, right? Yeah, but you got to get it back into the truck. The truck pulls up. Now you've got to build like a, a ramp or a like a tunnel for the for the pigs to go. And and when you get in, you ha sweet sweet, and you get them going. Um. When one pig goes, the rest of them kind of follow. So we had a tunnel built, and it kind of went, you know, through the through the seats and shit, and it went through the vomitorium there, and it went right p- past Vince's office down the hallway and right into the to the pig uh, truck. So the pigs just go, man. You, you got to make it. the The tunnel is only wide enough for one pig, and they pretty much stay and they, they run. You got a guy coming along behind them and you got them along the way, kind of shooing them along and shit. So <laughs> as we're sitting there, we go, Steve Taylor and I are looking and there's Vince's office. And Vince finished up the show and there was like another little, little room where he is in the back of and all the shit. So we just kind of took one like wall of the, tunnel and put it at a 90 degree angle. And then we took like the rest of the walls on the other side, turned them at a 90 degree angle. So that the only place that these pigs had to go was right into Vince's office. So while Vince is in like bathroom area and all this shit, getting changed and, and what have you for the night. And we're getting ready to leave. And 
here come all the pigs fresh out of their pig shit and mud and all their crap. And we just kind of directed them right into Vince's office and then shut the door. And? Well, he wasn't real happy. <laughs> he being the hogs, the male hogs, huh? he being the male hog. Yeah. He, he wasn't real fucking happy. And, uh, I know that Pat's name was thrown out there and I don't even think Pat was fucking there. Um, he might've been, he might've been, that might've been one of Pat's last shows in this, in this era. But, um, we were kind of laughing our ass off. And the, the problem now is, is because we moved the, the little tunnel shit. Well, now you got to build the tunnel back so that they, when they come out of Vince's office, that they don't go back to the fucking pen in the arena. So we had everybody kind of pissed off at us from, from Vince was pissed off because he had a bunch of stinky, uh, shitty buddy hogs in his office to the, the guy that was in charge of the pigs because now he's got to rebuild the thing and fucking turn it all back. So they don't go back to the goddamn pig pen in the ring. And yeah, we had a few people kind of pissed off at us, but that's the story of my life, Connie. So since this was, you know, akin to the hell in a cell. Why was this? Yes. I guess my question is the hell in a cell has become a staple pay-per-view. Why is there not a hog pen pay-per-view here in 2020? Can we make that happen in 2021? You never say never in the world wrestling federation. Anywhere. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley beat Henry Godwin in the Arkansas hog pen match at eight 58 hillbilly Jim looking much older. Yeah. My daughter's name is Kansas. So I always pronounce it that way as a tribute to her. Sort of like you'll sometimes say, oh man, he was hurt. He had to call the Amber lamps. You tell Wisconsin. I said, hello. Uh, looking much older than the last time he was on WWF TV. He came out as a special surprise referee and got a good reaction. Uh, he could never work, but he had a lot of charisma. Both of these guys worked hard, but the idea was to work the match down behind the ringside area and throw the opponent into the hog pen for the win. It made everything in the ring lack any meaning. Godwin heaved the slot bucket at Helmsley who got out of the way in a ringside attendant. Maybe Mark Eaton took the brunt of it by blocking it from the fans. Helmsley then had some of the slop rubbed in his face. They worked their way to the pen and Godwin whipped Helmsley into the pen and tried to backflip him in, but Helmsley landed on top. Helmsley then delivered a cactus Jack elbow off the pen onto the floor, which was also covered with mats. They worked their way back to the ring then back out again. The finish would see Godwin deliver his slop drop near the pen and then have Helmsley set up he goes for the tackle, but Helmsley ducks and Godwin goes into the pen and loses. Helmsley then gets in a shoving contest with Hillbilly Jim, but Godwin came back and press slammed Helmsley, dropping him face first into the pen, and then body slams him into the pen. It was even more gross since Helmsley had a cut opened up on his back from a guardrail shot. Helmsley then slipped around doing a Bobby Heenan inside the pen, falling down time after time. One star. Boy, did I mean, this is Boy, uh, you, that fucking you put, I'm telling you right now. Oh, don't you make a Tokyo Dome you joke. put that motherfucker God in the Tokyo Dome. 42 stars. And don't go mess with the country, boy. Country, boy. Country, boy. Don't go mess with the country, boy. Don't mess with the country, boy. By the way, there's going to be some people who would say they would never do a match like this in Japan. But, I mean. That's fucking horseshit. Horseshit. 
No, it's hog shit, Bruce. Yeah, well, they, they trust me, they do it in Japan. Listen, uh, this feels like punishment for Hunter, but this is pre curtain call. Uh, what the fuck? Why, is, I- why is being in a feature match, <laughs> a specialty feature match? Well, listen. Uh, hang on now. Well, that, uh, punish me every day of the week. Then the, the next thing you're going to tell me is that you're going to have dog food rubbed on Roman Reigns. Now, would you have ever done that? Oh wait, hang on. During the match, Jerry Lawler keeps telling I'm the. Tell you something. Back in the day, JYD and Gino Hernandez <laughs> in a dog food match, fucking sold out everywhere. Fucking to see Gino get that dog food shoved in his fucking mouth. Yeah, back in the day, we had three channels too. Actually, well, maybe in hillbilly country, we had five in Texas. Well, two of them were Spanish. See, during the match, Lawler keeps telling these Foxworthy redneck jokes, but he's changing it from, you might be from bitters, Arkansas. After several, several of these Vince shouts, I'm not from bitters, Arkansas. What is this stuff? Do you think Vince had any clue? What a Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck joke was. There's no way he knew that, right? No, he knew it. Really? Just Lawler was a terrible joke teller. Oh my God. Listen to you. Just saying. So Hillbilly Jim here, I guess if you're going to have a hog pen match, he's got to go with it, right? It's like peas and carrots. Damn right. Don't go mess with country boy, country boy, country boy. Don't go mess with country boy. Don't mess with country boy. Spend my knees working hard on the go, with the hands on the clock, keep spinning too slow. Hey, you know, you know, I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Hey, what's it? It's like a medley. What's wrong with you? You realize you're going to get another call in a minute. And we're going to have to stop, and you're wasting valuable time singing songs nobody wants to hear. Okay, let's get to the main event. Well, hang on. Out of curiosity, there is no bitters, Arkansas. There's a biggers. There's a bald knob. There's a wiener. But no, no bitters. You ever been to Wiener, Arkansas? I've been through Wiener, Arkansas. Well, that's how you get your big push. Uh, Owen, Owen Hart beat Diesel by DQ in 434 when Diesel shoves the ref after using the jackknife. After the match, he used another jackknife. Uh, Meltzer would say Hart did a great job of carrying this star and a half. I like this continuing to build Diesel with the attitude. You know, he's not happy with the way everything ended at survivor series. And now, you know, it's our follow-up pay-per-view in December. We're so, we're showing him with a, a hard edge. I think the next month he's actually going to start flipping people off. Kind of a big deal here. Did you like this progression of the diesel character? I did. Uh, it was, it was more, <laughs> it was more to the true character. So it was coming to life and it was something that. Kevin was comfortable in, and I think that resonated. People could believe in it. Next up, Meltzer writes, Ted DiBiase did an interview saying he could buy anyone. At about that same time, Savio Vega, who had worked a dark match, was throwing WWF merchandise to the crowd along with Santa Claus. DiBiase told Savio he could even buy him. The two started arguing when Santa jumped Vega and attacked him. You could see this coming a mile away, but for some reason, I always enjoy these Santa Claus angles. I guess because one of the best angles I ever saw was a Santa Claus angle in 83 at the reunion arena in Dallas during the Von Eric's Freebirds feud where doc Hendricks in his former life dressed up as Santa Claus and then turned on the Von Eric's bill Mercer questioned whether or not that was the real Santa Claus. 
Uh, DiBiase left with Santa and then Vega ran from the ring and attacked him, pulling off his hat, wig, and beard, revealing him to be John Rickner. And the next night they gave him his new ring name, Santa Claus. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the debut of Santa Claus. We all know him as balls Mahoney and he appears on the brother love show the next night. Apparently Santa had an evil twin and his name was Santa only instead of North pole. He is from the South pole and he pins Brian Walsh the next night at TV. And of course the gimmick was killed that same week. And on a U shoot with Sean Oliver, friend of the show Ball said that Vince wanted him to stay on the roster and pay him until another opportunity came up. But apparently a leak to the dirt sheet said he stayed until he got drunk in the locker room. Uh, Mahoney thought that this leak came from Vince Russo and, uh, called into the company to ask for Vince. When Vince got on the phone, he cussed him out saying he's going to kill him, et cetera, et cetera. And then Vince said, you realize this is Vince McMahon and ball said no and hung up. And I guess that's how in wrestling circles, he got the nickname balls. He cussed out the wrong Vince lot to unpack here on this very short lived Santa Claus. What the fuck was this? Well, Vince does love Santa Claus. Um, we had the real Santa Claus that would come and make parties and shit. And, uh, he made survivor series for us. Um, this year and we we were very close to the real Santa Claus. So we thought what, you know, what if Santa had an evil twin brother and everything was the opposite. It's kind of like bizarro Santa. Yeah. Black, black beard. And he hated <laughs> kids instead of loved kids. What are you going to do with this guy at SummerSlam though? And he had John and he had giants that like made weapons instead of midgets and made, uh, toys. How high were you when you came up with this? I don't remember. You were very <laughs> high. You and Briscoe were so high. But that was the idea. It was, it was kind of like a, just a fucking, let, let's go have some fun and shit with this. And balls got fucked up the next day and demanded money from, uh, Jim Myers, Georgie animal steel. And just, uh, yeah, I don't remember the thing about Vince Russo or anything like that. Cause balls was pretty much fired for going off on Georgie animal steel about money. And Jim basically telling him he would kill him because at that time, Georgie animal steel probably could. Um, so it was not, it was not a good few days for old Santa Claus. He was, he was gone back to the South pole about as quickly as he got there. And it was a failed experiment. It was fucking rotten. I mean, it sucked. It was so fucking bad that, you know, as you're watching it, you're going, oh, fuck, man. Oh, this is not good. Um, Yeah, it's pretty rotten. But then you, you wonder if it's so rotten that it's good. But it wasn't that rotten that it was good. But I do have to differ with um, your little guy that tells lies and stuff. The greatest Santa Claus angle is an angle that I have seen portions of, but I've never seen the whole thing. But the reason it was so good is because it was told to me 
by the man that came up with it, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And it was talking about being in Florida on Christmas Day. <laughs> in, in a cage. They got a cage match. It was like got Santa Clauses all over the building. It got about five, six, seven, eight Santa Clauses hanging out, hanging out candy and, and, and Christmas presents to all their children all over the arena. They're all over the place. And I think it was Dusty and Kevin Sullivan, maybe. I'm in the ring with the devil, big cage match. This is this is this is a big blow off and all. And I beat him with inch his life, and then all of a sudden, Santa Claus hits the ring. Locks the cage door. And everybody's happy. Because they see Santa Claus in the ring with Mac and Dream Dusty Rose. They know that he's there because he's only there for good. He's Santa Claus. And then Santa Claus takes this big bag full of gifts for the little children. And swings it over his head, knocks the Mac and Dream out, and Santa Claus beats up the Mac and Dream Dusty Rose. And everybody's coming over the cage trying to trying to help them. Because Santa Claus and the evil Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan is so evil that he has he has now manipulated Santa Claus to see his evil ways. The only thing pumpkin here that we didn't think of was we had five or six of the Santa Clauses in the crowd, you know, to draw attention so they couldn't pick out the one. So everybody just figures. Santa Claus has turned on the American Dream. Wait, none of the rest of you Santa Claus is going to get in there and fuck up the American Dream. We're going to whip y'all ass. We may not be able to get to the one in the cage. And everybody started beating up any Santa Claus that was near them. Pumpkin here, we definitely had a riot. People trying to beat up anybody with a Santa Claus suit on. And, and to hear Dusty fucking tell this story, and I'm just sitting there going, God damn. I've seen, you know, like different clips and shit. From the Santa Claus angle, but just to hear Dusty Huggles pointing in and think about the other five or six Santa Clauses out there. <laughs> and the crowd just thought Santa Claus had done turned. And before these Santa Clauses get in there and fuck up American Dream, we got to stop them. And everybody started jumping Santa Clauses all over the building. There's one, get him! Mrs. Claus, she's a whore, get her too! How did you get Vince to agree to Santa Claus? Oh, he had a hand in it. He's not completely innocent. When did he realize, oh, this, this, this was bad. The very what next night, saw. the first time. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, 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 you visualize something, but then I'm, I'm not sure that uh, balls was the right candidate either. Except, I mean, he looked the part. He did look the part. And I guess, uh, his literally his first day at TV or the very next day after that is when he pops off with, uh, Georgie. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's less than yeah. ideal. Yeah. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Do you ever hear about this thousand dollars or something like that? Do you ever hear this uh, story where, uh, he accidentally cusses out the wrong Vince? He's got heat with Russo, but it's actually McMahon. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I, yeah, who knows that 
Balls was drinking an awful lot then. Well, be sure to ask him tomorrow and report back to us next. Next up, Undertaker beats King Mabel in a casket match in six minutes and 11 seconds. Mabel did a bunch of moves and Undertaker kept sitting up. Mo distracted Undertaker, allowing Mabel to use a belly to belly, a leg drop, and a big splash. That's pretty much all we got. Uh, Mo went to put Undertaker in the casket, but forgot to shut the lid. The two celebrated, and then as I went to shut the lid, Undertaker blocks it, gets out of the casket, and of course makes his comeback. After a choke slam, Undertaker kicks Mabel into the casket. Mo then attacks Undertaker, who's not selling it, and choke slams Mo instead, throws him in the casket as well, grabs the necklace, which uh, had the remnants of the urn, to get back his magical powers and shut the lid. Uh, Meltzer would say it wasn't anywhere near as bad as their previous pay per view match. So this just goes to show you that Undertaker really can turn chicken shit into chicken salad. Gets a star and a half. Boy, somewhere in this era, he had to be like nut tapping you every time he walked past you in the hallway. You gave me Giant Gonzalez. You gave me King Kong Bundy. You gave me fucking Mabel. Can You're I- welcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's run. King Mabel has sort of run his course, right? He's going to work the night. King nights. Mabel would definitely run his course. And, and, but you know what? God damn it. It wasn't that bad. Okay. You got to see some of the athleticism of, of Mabel. And it wasn't that fucking bad. And it was meant to be exactly what it was. And this was a, a opportunity for Undertaker to get his revenge and put Mabel and Mo and all them in a casket and be gone. He hits the 96 Royal rumble and then he's done. He's all finished up. Um, I guess he, you know, heard a lot of people along the way, diesel taker, et cetera. And as you said, the gimmick had just sort of run its course. Let's talk to the main event though. Bret Hart is going to retain beating Davy boy Smith in 21 minutes and nine seconds. Uh, Meltzer really loved it. He gave it four and a half stars. This is the best match on the card and it's not close. Uh, Bret Hart retains the title here with a Lucha cradle. Um, Diana Smith is coming to ringside with Davy boy. Diana was pushed hard on TV is rooting 100% for Davy boy in this match, rather than being torn between the two as she had been at that 92 classic SummerSlam match. It started slow, but builds into a very great match. Meltzer would say among the new spots was Hart trying for a superplex Smith, blocking it and picking Hart up as a reversal and crotching him on the top rope. Hart hit his head on the steps and had his back rammed into the post and ends up juicing heavily. And I got to tell you, this really caught me off guard. Uh, when I watched this one back, I forgot all about this bloodbath. Uh, Smith used a pile driver and a headbutt off the top rope for near falls. And after a bow and arrow Hart reverses, it goes for a sharpshooter, but of course, Davy gets out and now they're trading near falls until Brett hits a plancha. He tries for a second dive, but Smith catches him and power slams him on the floor, which is a big time move in 95 or in 2020 Smith undoes the mats around the ring and goes to suplex heart. But of course, Brett reverses it and crotches Smith on the guardrail. He uses a backbreaker and a superplex for near falls. And then Smith tries a rolling reverse, but Hart reverses it for another near fall. And then finally gets the win after the match, Smith leaves hugging his wife and walking out together which looks as if he's going to turn babyface, according to Meltzer and the commentary in the closing minutes. They definitely gave you the impression. Both were baby faces. According to Dave four and a half stars. It really did 
save the show. It's been a sort of a eh show. There are some interesting things if you look back at it, uh, but this match, I mean, this is the definition of a one match show when it's over, right? This is what everybody's talking about. What about the hog pin and the fucking casket match? Oh God. You like those as good as this one. This was good shit. Man. I thought this was a very good match. I thought it was a great match actually. Um, and it was, you know, it was a good final match. It was absolutely excellent with two of the best, but it fucking should have been. And it was a good story with Diana and, um, you know, the family dynamic. I thought every bit of it worked out great and was a damn good story. Uh, Melzer's teasing here that, oh, it seems like they're going to turn this, you know, turn him baby face. But of course we know that didn't happen. Was it ever considered? No, I, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that probably, uh, some of the hearts wanted it, wanted them all to be back as one big happy family. But at this point, no, man, I can't believe I'm about to read this to you. Cause that, it, I, I wasn't, I'll admit I wasn't paying attention uh, close enough to really know for sure. Uh, I guess I'll go review the tape again, but this just jumps off the page at me. Most reports are that the blood in the heart Smith match was from a blood capsule rather than a blade job. Don't know for sure. Bruce. What the fuck? Yeah. I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. Uh, fucking idiot. It's already announced here that the WWF champion would defend at the Royal rumble against the undertaker. So undertaker and Paul bear were doing an interview when diesel came out and complained saying he deserved the title shot and the show went off the air with the two doing a face to mask stare down. Of course, this is when, uh, undertaker still wearing that mask. How did these two wind up programmed together for WrestleMania? Did Taker want to work with diesel vice versa? Did it come from Vince? Did you already know at this point diesel's given notice and he's finishing up? No, we didn't know, you know, and, and this was during the time that, that Kevin was really also talking about he wouldn't, he would never leave and so on and so forth. But beside the point, it was when you look in the book and you look at one of the best attractions for WrestleMania, uh, Diesel and Undertaker was definitely one of the best attractions. So this was planting the seeds and knowing that we were going to get there and just a little different way to do it. Please start it. After the live pay-per-view ends, of course, the, the, the crowd there in the arena still gets some stuff. They get gold dust versus Duke, the dumpster Drose. Drosey. Meltzer would say the match went too long and had no heat following the main event. Uh, and then smoking guns and Hakushi are going to team with Barry Horowitz. Let me recap here. The smoking guns, Barry Horowitz and Hakushi. Bless you. Are going to take on Yokozuna, Isaac Yankum, Skip, and Zip. What the fuck, dude? What's wrong with that? That's woof. Let's send them home happy. Are you saying Dr. John Richards is not main event, last match quality? No, I just love that you got him teaming with an evil dentist, a Yokozuna, sumo wrestler, Hakushi, and he's taking on Hakushi and a couple cowboys. Yeah. Uh, the best match poll, Damn according right. to the wrestling observer readers, it's unanimous Bret Hart and Davy boy, the worst match also not close. Ahmed Johnson and buddy Landale Meltzer would be pretty critical saying it was like two different shows. Uh, it was almost a complete mess. One bad match after another one bad segment after another, a total lack of crowd heat. It seemed like one was watching a dying company like the AWA at the end. 
desperately throwing bad angle and bad character that you knew wasn't going to get over just hoping that something would stick going into the main event. The show was in the toilet and more memorable because the WWF, for whatever reason, decided against confiscating signs before the show. Either way, then came the main event with Bret Hart and Davy boy Smith. And the match was nothing short of fantastic. It featured the return of the WWF using heavy juice by Hart. The announcer, Vince McMahon, apparently in an effort to play both sides of the coin, ordered wide shots and apologized about the blood, I guess, to placate cable people who don't want blood on wrestling pay-per-views while also trying to get over a rougher style because the old style just doesn't cut it anymore. Hart's blood caused an ECW arena like reaction of he's hardcore. The finish of the show complete with a post, a post-show face-off with undertaker and diesel was so good. I almost felt guilty giving the show with a main event that that strong a thumbs down. That probably explains the mixed reaction in the show poll. Although many who voted thumbs up were very strong in that feeling, almost all citing blood as the reason. And there are a lot of ECW signs in the crowd. Like we're hardcore ECW gangsters rule. Mikey rules. Um, hello, ECW fans read the Lariat. There's lots of ECW references. So I guess, you know, as silly as you're going to say, oh, we didn't even consider that blood, the main event, boy, the crowds into it and the fans at home loved it. I thought it really added a lot to the match. Uh, I think this is an underrated pay-per-view just because of the main event. Having said all that, how do you respond to, uh, Meltzer's report? And what'd you think of the show? Yeah, I thought the show was solid. Uh, I think that. Everything considered when you, you package the entire show and look at it. And I did enjoy the hog pen match. And I thought that the undertaker and Mabel was a good match as well. Last match was great. So, you know, you have a kind of a roller coaster. And if, if you, if you start off and you wear your audience out again, I think that you can't have every single match be the same. So it was different. There was variety and I thought it was a solid show. Not good. Not bad. Let's, uh, let's do some questions here. We've got lots of them, uh, from our listeners here. If you want to ask a question for next week and we should remind you next week, and I'm so fucking pumped about this. It's our Christmas episode and man, we always have fun with this, but this, this time in particular, the show actually drops on Christmas day, which is kind of cool. And we figured I have a Merry Christmas. I love that for a minute you weren't looking at the camera and you just looked away and you're like, did he, where'd he go? Oh, oh, that was, that was me. That was for me. <laughs> <That's my part. laughs> uh, ben wants to know, uh, there's been times when Vince was cool with blood. And then there are times like now where Vince apparently despises blood. Why do you think his feelings have changed? What do you think Vince's true feelings are on getting juice? Uh, you know, times change, your tastes change. That's just life. You evolve. Well, it's also worth mentioning, you know, he's, he's running a business. So if, if, if there is an appetite for it, or there's major pushback from it, from advertisers, I mean, you've got a right. I mean, that's like always a consideration. You, you never want to hurt your business with your creative. Well, again, it's, you know, times change, tastes change. Uh, Someone asks here, 
Why did no one ever tell Ahmed Johnson? He always had a wedgie Were people just scared of him. God. Yes. Aren't you great question here? The post champion diesel character was awesome. This was the precursor to stone cold. Steve Austin. Was it not? I think Steve was different. And, and again, I, I think that, you know, Steve wasn't a giant and Nash was a big giant son of a bitch with a bad attitude. And it's just different. Mr. Beard wants to know after returning for the undertaker's farewell at survivor series, when is Hogpen two going to take place? We need Henry O to get his win back. And personally, I want a Hogpen pay-per-view with multiple pin matches. It turns See? out Mr. Beard and you have a lot in common. See? Damn right. Jimmy Need more hog pen. Jimmy wants to know why'd you bring back double J, but not the roadie. You know, I don't know that Brian was in a place that he was ready to come back at that point. Uh, Jordan says, uh, Vince, as well as his nameplate called one, two, three kid, just the kid during his match. Did Vince just love that? It rhymed with Sid. Why didn't it stick? You know, just the kid. Well, that was the first thing that we did call the kid was the kid. Uh, we did Kamikaze kid, a lot of different things. It's, it's like, okay, well, if you're just going to call Bret Hart Hart one time, God damn it. The fuck. Now I'm getting pissed off again, Conrad. Oh, I thought you got another call. I was already no. getting the fast forward sound effect queued up. You were ready. Weren't you? I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I know what this comes with these days. Uh, J- Jaden wants to know, Bruce, where'd you find a casket big enough to hold Mabel's big old ass? Big old ass caskets are us. Uh, Jordan wants to know how were the jobbers chosen to carry Mabel? Jeff Hardy has seen wincing and everyone else was looking like they were legit struggling. Well, first of all, I hate the word jobbers. It's derogatory. And, um, it's, we got people that we use, it wasn't a specific, uh, goddamn casting call. Well, you, you get sideways in a hurry these days. I do. I, I, you know what? I fucking do. Was it Italian stallion who was picking the, the, the guys up or out or the question is, how are you chosen them? How are you choosing? What was the process? It was, you know, I guess when we had TV and whoever was in the area that that was there. Wasn't like, oh my God, I need that guy to wheel out the casket. Uh, Daryl asked a good question here. He says, I remember for the next month on the TV shows that matches from this pay-per-view were shown for free, which didn't happen beforehand. What went behind that decision? Did you think maybe because you had such a terrible buy rate that maybe if you showed them, Hey, this was entertaining shit, maybe they would reconsider or. Was it something else? I don't know. I'd have to have my memory refreshed on what matches they were and for what reason. I don't really remember that. Which bulldog Brett match do you prefer this one or the one from SummerSlam for the IC title comes to us from Michael. Hmm. You got blood here, but you got a great ambiance and crowd in in Wembley. Yeah. The purest in me would go with Wembley. Yeah. It's such a fun atmosphere. Uh, Jeremy says, who do you think was the better backstage interviewer? Todd Pettengill or doc Hendricks? Oh, hands down. Todd Pettengill. Why is that? Because Todd could adapt to pretty much any situation and 
looked like he belonged. And Doc Hendricks was just, well, doop, doop, doop. Uh, Matt writes, Eric mentioned on a podcast that in 1995, Vince would write and call Ted Turner complaining about blood on WCW. And then here he is doing it. Do you remember Eric writing or calling after this blood incident here? I have no idea. Uh, Eric wants to know, oh, I can't believe. Why didn't he just call me and ask me then? Eric wants to know, how would Jerry Jarrett describe the hog pen match? Uh, fuck him. I can't even discuss me. I can't even do him. All right. Last one. Joe Lawson wants to know the number one, six, two, four on the house. 1624 is the house number. Is there an Easter egg behind that? God damn. Y'all dig deep. That's uh, a good one. No, though. They're, they're not to my knowledge. Okay. Maybe the guy, maybe the set designer did that, but I have no idea. 1624. I could see, uh, two, four, seven, one, six, two, four. That's going to bug the fuck out of me now. I doubt it. Well, let's find out. Uh, are you going to ask Vince tomorrow about, uh, Santa yeah, Claus right calling in the 1624 figure that out and then work on SmackDown. Don't forget to watch SmackDown later tonight, live on Fox. And you guys have a big pay-per-view coming up this weekend too, right? Bruce. I got TLC on WWE Network, only nine ninety nine. Check it out, and uh, we'll be back next week, just in time for Christmas. Hit it, Bruce. Why have a Merry Christmas when you can have a? <laughs> next week on something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. Hey, we made it to the end without another phone call. Can you believe it? Oh, wait, shit. I gotta go. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with a distracted Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? You don't know me. I used to. I used to know you real well. We used to like drink beers together and eat oysters together. You would talk about Korean barbecue. Yeah, you damn near killed me. You remember that? I do. Hey, by the way, we have a Korean barbecue place here in town now. I know you always want it. It's pretty good. It's K Dog's favorite. She loves it. Hmm. Just saying. Yeah, no, not yo yo yo. Let me speak on this. Uh, but but my kid Kansas, you know, you used to know her. She used to call you Uncle Bruce. It was cool. It's a long Omaha? time. Yeah, there you go. You remember. So here's the deal, man. We're here because it's a very special anniversary. I'm pretty fired up about this one too. As we're talking right now, just yesterday was the 25th anniversary of in your house six known as rage in the cage from the Louisville gardens in Louisville, Kentucky, a live crowd, about 5,500 fans are there. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a full sellout for Louisville gardens. And, uh, Meltzer of course said the company fibbed about the sellout being weeks in advance, but who cares? It's an $83,000 gate. What's your favorite thing you remember about Louisville, Kentucky? You've been there a few times in your day. Um, Danny Davis is probably one of my favorite things, but Danny Davis is no longer in Louisville, Kentucky. So it can't even be Danny Davis anymore, but uh, I absolutely uh, loved me some Danny Davis. The Louisville gardens was also the place where, uh, Kamala chopped 
Howard Finkel, and we had to uh, take Howard out the back doors and have the EMTs assess him and make sure that he was okay from that devastating chop. Because the man is a savage, Kamala the Ugandan warrior. <laughs> and and you, you got to take all the precautions that you possibly can. Um, I like the downstairs uh, locker room kind of set up there and, and what have you. And uh, other than that, not much else to like about Louisville. The show here does a 0.75 buy rate, which is Oh, rough. wait, they got good fried fish. Fried fish. They got fried fish. Actually, Corny, Corny took me to this fried fish. Gotta get the fried fish. Wait, he wrote a whole article about that fish place once, didn't he? The, the fish place is good. It's like been there forever and ever, and they yeah. s- it's done when they sell out like a barbecue place type deal. Right. Yeah, and, and it's really good, too. It's really good. And then there was a place uh, that Danny Davis used to take me to all the time for lunch that I couldn't tell you the name of it. That was absolutely, I loved Louisville actually. You, you know I, what? I love, I think the one I'm remembering is Clarksville, the Clarksville seafood restaurant, but it's near Louisville, right? I don't know, but I do know that, uh, it's not in Louisville proper. It's, oh you, yeah. Okay. There you go. Clarksville seafood is a delicious decadent of, uh, or delicious descendant of the Cape Cotter restaurants that dotted Louisville and Lexington all through the sixties. There was a location near my house, blah, blah, blah. So Cornette had some deep affection for Clarksville seafood. Yeah, it was good. It was nice. Uh, uh, cornmeal. Old school, like baby. Shit. Yeah. That's South. Right there. Yes. Hush so, puppies. Motherfucker. So the show does a 0.75 buy rate, roughly 150,000 buys on pay-per-view. The price tag is still fourteen ninety five, which, you know, I think we learned uh, not too much longer. What? Maybe a year later. Hey, we don't have to do this anymore. We can charge full price for these some bitches. The same hardcores are going to pay it. Right. Absolutely. And, and they were, you know, and, and WCW proved that WCW went in and started just running monthly pay-per-views and didn't miss a beat. So <laughs> there we are running pay-per-views that were an hour, an hour shorter. However, um, half the price caught. Yeah. And it costs the same to produce. Yeah. So why not make the full yeah. rack? And it's crazy to think that even though that was so cheap back then, it's still more than the network costs now. So while some fans say, Oh, wrestling's not what it used to be. And uh, listen, we all love what we grew up on. It is better to be a fan now and you get all that stuff for even less money. Uh, this show does a much better number than the prior two in your house events. We said this one gets a 0.75 buy rate. Well, in your house, four got a a 0.4 and in your house, five got a 0.35. So we're more than double. So this to me feels like, Hey man, 96 is going to be better than 95. No matter how you slice it. Is that because of Sean or is it just cyclical? I just think that, you know, in general business, you know, coming around, I, believe business is cyclical, but also at the same time, if you have an attraction they want to see, they're going to come out and see it. I'm sure some of it being WrestleMania season didn't hurt on commentary tonight. It's Jerry, the King Lawler and Vince McMahon. Uh, I've always really liked that pair. I know people prefer Jr. and the King, but I thought King played well off of Vince. He did because it was that now that was a true dichotomy instead of having two hillbillies like Jr. and King. Here you had the city boy Vince and the hillbilly King hillbilly. Listen to you. Since we're already talking about Lawler, let's talk about the King of Memphis. He is no doubt. Okay. 
Let's talk about some of the shows leading up to this event. Uh, he's doing some crossover work with Lawler's USWA. And on the February 14th USWA show, we had Lawler team up with Jeff Jarrett to beat the undertaker and Bret Hart by DQ. Can you imagine being a wrestling fan, just a little kid who loves wrestling and shows up to a show like he might normally would. And it's your hometown favorites, Lawler and Jarrett, but the damn undertaker and Bret Hart are there. That's big time stuff. Oh yeah. Especially for Memphis. The show eventually built to a big Memphis event on February 17th at the pyramid, which drew nearly 8,000 paid fans. The gate was 90 grand. Uh, that's gotta be one of the top crowds in that era, at least for Memphis. Uh, the show is a part of the WWF world tour de force. It's headlined by Bret Hart and Jerry Lawler for the WWF title in a salad steel cage. Of course, Bret wins. And there's lots of other top acts, including Sean and loads of USWA talent as well. How easy was it to talk Vince into doing some talent trades and all that for Memphis with Lawler? Well, during this time, and you had, uh, using Memphis as a developmental territory and having a place for guys to go and be able to do live television every Saturday, that to me was a big, big part of learning and, and, in, and in your training. So, uh, having guys be able to go down and work, do a shot for Memphis, if it made sense, not all the time, because after after a while, then they become normal too. And it's, eh, I've seen that. So we tried to make it work where we could. I know one of the guys that you worked with occasionally down there, Randy Hales, any good Randy Hales stories you can share with us? Not really. Uh, I, you know, here, here's the funny thing. I, I didn't, uh, I worked a match with Randy Hales, which was the one and only match I've ever worked as a baby face in my life. Um, and what? I went over. What you wrestled Randy Hales? Yes, in an eight man tag or ten man tag with Tom and Doc and uh Giant Silva, uh me. I think it might have been an eight man tag or ten man tag, something like that. Randy Hales was on the other side of that. Yeah. I, think- be, I can't even give you the date. The date of that match, it was twenty god damn, Conrad. Um so it was 22 years ago. It may have been so February 13th, February 13th at the new Daisy theater. And it was the drizzling shits. Um, it, yeah, it sunk giant. Um, yeah. you know what? And, uh, Bruno downtown Bruno was ringside and broke my ankle in that match. And I'm thinking, what the fuck am I doing in a ring and why? Right. Yeah, it was horrible. It it was it was absolutely terrible. Well, I gotta look that show up because we we need to see that. Oh God, I hope it doesn't exist. I don't think it exists anywhere on tape, man. Oh, I'm gonna find. Like, it. I think I banned anyone from. I think I, <laughs> I'm like not a fucking chance in hell. Michael Hayes knocked out Jim Cornette's tooth on that same show. Um, in the same match. It wasn't the same match. It was the same show. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was great. And, and Cornette was was shaking, <laughs> trying to get his his tooth on ice and shit. And they wanted to sprite, but uh, yeah, that was taking Michael's working punch. 
Let's talk about uh, some injuries coming out of this. Jeff Jarrett. We just did. Corny lost a tooth. Well, that's a few years later. Okay. Uh, Jeff Jarrett suffered a serious back injury on the February 17th show in Memphis, taking a wrong bump against Ahmed Johnson. He's carried out of the ring and hospitalized. Meltzer are right. He's out of the hospital, but no word on when he'll be back. Is this one of the first casualties of Ahmed Johnson? You said recently, very famously, oh, Ahmed didn't discriminate. He'd hurt himself and others. <laughs> yeah. Ahmed could be a little rough on his opponents from time to time. It was, they didn't know where he didn't know where they were going to land and neither did they. On February 16th in Nashville, which also drew a big crowd. Um, we see Ahmed Johnson win a match by DQ when Jarrett hit him with the unified title belt. Uh, apparently the undertaker, uh, razor Ramon and Hunter Hearst Helmsley all no showed the Memphis card. So they put Yoko Zuna on instead of undertaker in the intercontinental title match with gold with a walkout finish. So it's an interesting time in the company where we're making shots with other promotions and some guys aren't showing and some guys are injured. And there's even a triangular tag match where they allow locals, Tommy rich and Doug Gilbert to go over the Godwins and the body Donna's. That's probably got to be kind of funny if you're a local Memphis fan. Like, wait a minute. Did they just get a win over two WWF tag teams? That's a pretty big deal. Well, again, we work well with our partners. Now to some more news. Vader signed his two-year contract in February. The deal allegedly allows him to still work Japan, but Titan has to approve any U.S. indie dates, which include the Los Angeles show. He's expected to start full-time on the road after WrestleMania. He injured himself at the in your house show doing a run in as his shoulder hadn't fully recovered from the surgery on February 6th. The reason he wore the overcoat on the in your house show and the sweatshirt on raw was to hide the two large incisions in arthroscopic hole, which removed part of his AC joint and repaired a torn rotator cuff. He busted open the stitches during the in your house run, but still did a couple of run ins at raw. Do you remember him busting open the stitches here? I remember Leon busting fucking everything open. He was a walking injury. Mm. Just, I mean, but seriously, it was, you, you, you never, and that's a terrible thing to say, but you, 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 you never really were able to go, oh my God, this is a bad injury or, oh my God, remember that one? Because every week it was something. At this pay-per-view it's announced, we're going to see Yokozuna versus Vader at WrestleMania, but eventually that's changed to a six man. Is that because of Yoko's weight Vader's injury? Or both? All the above. Okay. You had to protect them because neither one of them, you, you put both of them out there and who, the, the, I don't know, everybody might have just exploded. And it would have gotten all over the fans and it would have been hard to clean up. Uh, in February 8th, McMahon would file a complaint with the pre merger notification office of the FTC's Bureau of Competition. The exact details of the complaint were not available as of press time, but the FTC claimed to not have a copy of it. But McMahon has been trying to get the word out about his complaints. He claimed it wasn't any single action that was so bad on the surface to warrant the complaint, but it was the combination of different actions among them is WCW putting nitro up against raw state, uh, starting the show a few minutes early and ending it a few minutes late, which he called unprecedented in television. He also alleges contract tampering with his performers gaining syndicated time slots in some cases that the WWF would have gotten using the leverage of CNN headline news to put together deals or spending more money to buy time, attempting to drive television advertising rates down by charging less for ad time than the WWF would 
and even the name calling on television. And of course, all the silliness on the 900 hotline. I got to tell you in hindsight, this lawsuit from Vince feels a little bit like sour grapes. I mean, he, everything he's suing for here, he did to the territory guys before him. Right. Well, when a lawsuit, it was just a complaint. <laughs> well, that's fair. I agree right. with that. So you can complain about shit all you want. I want to file a formal complaint. They're fucking with my business and I don't like it. Yes. It's not illegal. I just don't like it. And I need people to hey, know some of it was contract tampering was illegal. I'm not arguing that, but the other shit is like, come on, man. Well, I didn't like it. I understand. In the WBS period of expansion, it also brought out ex- existing established television time slots from regional promoters. It also rated the best drawing talent of regional offices with the lure of them being able to earn a better income and uh, went back into the region with those same headliners. In the case of the AWA in particular, McMahon systematically picked off a large percentage of the key headline talent, both in the ring and behind the scenes, one by one. McMahon practically drove Crockett out of business by putting the first survivor series on pay-per-view on the date Crockett had already booked for his first Starcade pay-per-view in 87. And of course, virtually every cable company in the country went with McMahon and Crockett ran a pay-per-view that he expected to be a major cash windfall that ended up costing him money. So he continues to detail some of these circumstances, but this awfully feels like, I mean, it feels a lot like Vince getting a taste of his own medicine to me. Are you able to see that from the outside at all? Or you just got to sort of toe the line here? No, I I think that, you know, look, when you go back and look at the history of everything that took place, I think that a lot of the things that Bischoff did, um, were smart. Did he tamper with contracts? Yes. Uh, was that illegal? Yes. Um, doing everything else was out of the box and extraordinary and things that, you know, uh, had never been done before. So it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, they can do this. Well, they could do it because their boss owned the fucking network that they were on. So they could come in early. They could go off late. We didn't have that luxury because we didn't own USA. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was different things that, and the comparison is, is not necessarily fair. It was a completely different deal. And, but at the same time, I guess, you know, when you look at the offers that Eric was making and oftentimes get misconstrued, it was, Eric wasn't offering these huge money, uh, offers, uh, he was offering good money, but a different work schedule and allowing guys to have a completely different, you know, they didn't have to have to work four or five times a week. They came and did TV for a lot of them. That's all they did. So he was offering them something different and an alternative to what they were already doing. Um, again, you, you look at it and it was, it was different business and it was, they were coming from a place where they had no ad revenue. So, um, going in and being able to sell their ad revenue for less didn't hurt them because they didn't have any to begin with. So it, it hurt us because all of a sudden it's, they're selling it for pennies on the dollar and, um, yeah, shit happens. But how are they, how are they doing business wise now? WCW. Yeah. 
I mean, I think they're making a comeback. Okay, cool. That's what I heard. All right. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. Meltzer would say when it comes to television ad rates, WCW officials have claimed that their ads for the entire network for a 30 second spot are 19,000 while the WBFs are 15,000 claiming it's actually the WBF undercutting them. McMahon lists figures of 25,000 for WWF and 18,000 for WCW since McMahon's shows deliver a small audience and yet he's charging more. He's made the claim they're undercutting him. According to a third party buyer, the figure McMahon has claimed would be accurate. Uh, do you remember what ad rates were back in 87? We're talking about what they are here. And <laughs> no, I'm just saying when you're in no, the WWF, I don't, I, I, again, I didn't deal in that. I didn't, I had, I had no clue at all. We ain't got to get hot about it. I'm just I'm saying, not half hot. It feels already, like already here. We start off fucking nice. It's early in the morning. I'm all refreshed. I had a bowl of cereal and now you're already pissing me off. Okay. For the most recent ratings weekend, which will be the week ending January 28th, WCW was on 177 stations and the various cable networks reach a total of 6.7 million homes. The WBF has 161 stations and USA would hit 4.77 million homes. So the biggest possible rating for WCW there is a 7.1 compared to a 5.0 for the WWF. How important was syndication here? In 1996, it feels like less than in years past in 96, a lot less than it wasn't, it was different and it depended upon which book you wanted to, to look at, whether you wanted to look at Arbitron or you wanted to look at uh, another book, all that shit could be twisted and turned and, and made. (laughs) I was going through some of Paul Bosch's stuff the other day. And found some uh, what I call JR math of he would just take the highest ratings in certain markets and combine them and, and then put that out as a press release. Oh my God, look at this great rating! Leaving out, you know, the the hash marks in yeah. major markets like LA and Chicago and different things like that. And again, it's nothing more than marketing. Um, so so much of that was depending upon how people read them and what they were looking for. Well, depending on how you slice the numbers here, I could argue the WBF is still ahead. I would also argue that, um, the show is not, it's not bad. I actually kind of like this show. Let's talk about pay-per-views for 96 very briefly. I think most fans consider Starcade the, uh, the best show or the biggest show that WCW puts on. Well, here in 96 Starcade, of course, is in December several months after this, and it does 350,000 buys WrestleMania, of course, is the, uh, the primo show for the WWF. It does 300,000 buys. So technically Starcade wins, but I think by December, the business looks so much differently than it did in March. It's really not even fair to compare. Uh, let's talk about another story that doesn't get a lot of headlines. We've briefly touched on it before. Davey boy Smith is on trial for eight days on charges of aggravated assault. This is all coming from a 1993 fight in a bar where Davy boy was accused of causing permanent brain damage to a 22 year old who was flirting with his wife. This is a big story in Canada, especially after Davy boy testified on the stand that wrestling was fake quote, every single thing in wrestling is a fake. He said from the witness box while defending himself against this aggravated assault trial. 
Uh, what do you remember about Davy Boy's situation here? Not a lot. Uh, you know, it was an unfortunate situation in that uh, you had a fight and you win the fight, and because you're a professional athlete um, and famous and have money, people are going to come after you. Uh, you know what, Conrad? I could really get on my soapbox here, but I won't just in general about what I think is wrong with, with the world and the country right now. Well, I'm glad you're not because Jr. would, uh, let's recap the, the setting this day. You know what's wrong with the country ah! right now, Conrad? July 25th, 1993. It's like kids growing up. None of them have ever gone back behind the Minimax and had a goddamn fight. Okay. Nobody's ever been punched in the fucking mouth. And I think if more kids growing up got punched in the mouth, then they would have a little more respect and you'd have a different world. So I just want to recap. I want to make sure all the news sites are reporting and quoting you accurately. Bruce Pritchard is on the record saying, punch your kids in the face. It'll fix the world. No, not us. Oh, well, you said Other kids need to fight amongst themselves. All right. Kids punch each other in the face. It'll fix the world. That's- if you got a dispute, goddamn, don't go to a fucking hire a therapist at $800 a goddamn hour. Just punch each other in the face real hard. Punch each other in the face until somebody can't take the punch anymore. They submit, you shake hands, you move on. I don't know that that's really a good plan. Work for me. <laughs> I can tell three time karate black belt, all of famer. Working with, on four. With fake. That reminds me, I got to make that call and find out where that fourth fucking goddamn induction is. July 25th, 1993. Cody <laughs> light is a 22 year old and they're at the back alley bar in South <laughs> Cal- Calgary. Davy boys with his wife. And he says he's had about four beers. I suggest that's probably a little more than that. And he goes to the dance floor around one twenty to tell his wife it's time to leave for the evening. And that's when he first meets this Cody light character who was described as being six foot three, 180 pounds and a student. And he said that, uh, light appeared at his side, grabbed his right hand, shook it vigorously and repeatedly said, you got a nice fucking wife. And the court heard that light had asked Diana for a dance and that light was waiting for Diana. When Smith appeared, Smith said he didn't see the exchange between his wife and light. And I said, quote, thank you very much. I just wanted to let go and leave. And then light lunched or lurched forward. Lunch might've been better. And fearing light would headbutt him. Smith said he put light into a wrestling hole known as a face lock. And he walked light backwards about three meters to a rear door and left him with two bouncers. I told him this guy's trying to cause a problem. Get him away from me. I don't really see how this is that huge of a deal here, but eventually he turned his back to meet his wife. And then he turned to see light lying unconscious on the bar room's concrete floor. And a lot of other people have testified that Davy boy actually punched light in the face after light asked Smith's wife for a dance. And Peter McKenzie, a friend of Cody's uh, said, um, that light fell to the floor after the punch and that Smith then put him in a reverse headlock, dragged him across the room and rammed his head into a brick wall. And this is all happening while he's working in the wrestling business and he's on this card. This has to be something you're at least having a conversation about, right? Like I said, I, I vaguely remember it, but obviously I wasn't there. Now, had they gone back behind the Minimax 
and met and just had fight, then everything would have been okay. Well, I think they did that inside and it caused some legal problems. Well, I don't know. You got one guy who's a friend of the one guy has a different story. Who, you know, on that shit, who the hell ever really knows? Yeah. It's he said, she said, yeah. The biggest story of all around this time is of course the click giving notice or at least two of them. Uh, this is in the March 4th, 1996 observer in a situation spoken of with some disdain by the WBF CEO, Vince McMahon, Scott Hall sent a telegram to McMahon on February 21st, officially giving his 90 day notice that he was leaving the company on the same day. Hall was suspended by the WBF for six weeks for reason, theoretically having nothing to do with him giving notice, causing him to miss his scheduled appearances this past weekend. The suspension would take him a few days past WrestleMania which Hall was no doubt counting on as his last big payday before leaving. With him gone, the WWF will set up a gimmick match with Goldust against Roddy Piper for the vacant slot since they started working in that direction on the February 26th Raw show with Goldust doing a sexually suggestive phone interview, talking about Piper and wanting to play his bagpipes. While Hall would be eligible to return on April 3rd and work out the remainder of his notice, the general belief is that he'll be sitting out until he can join WCW. In an interview, Scott Hall said, so back then in your contract, you were required to give your 90 day notice in advance in writing. And I'll be darned if I didn't fail the piss test the next day. And it was six weeks old. And I went, wow, I guess they got my notice. What do you think of the timing of the drug suspension and Scott Hall saying that's awfully convenient? Well, I have no idea as far as the drug suspension, because I wasn't involved in the drug testing. That was an independent deal that that they did. So I have no idea. All I know is that we had, you know, going into WrestleMania, we did have razor and gold dust scheduled for a feature match and was told, Hey guys, you lost razor Ramon for six weeks. Um, not an ideal situation in any way, shape or form. So we weren't told, you know, you can't be, uh, what they were gone for six weeks for. He's just put two and two together. And so, yeah, fucked up our WrestleMania and had to find something else quickly. Let's talk a little bit about doll hairs for a minute, uh, because we've got, what's that doll hairs, doll hairs. Yeah. Uh, it's in the uh, observer razor is believed oh, to have well, earned approximately $270,000 and 95, well down from what he earned in 94, which was in excess of 400,000. And he would also say he's been unhappy recently. And everybody knows that because he didn't want to feud with gold dust. He wanted to work with either Hunter or the one, two, three kid, but he was also unhappy with the baby bottle and diaper angle. And he had been missing some late, some house shows, or he had been late and he's citing family pressures, but now he's got an offer of guaranteed money, perhaps long-term and an easier road schedule. So it's a bit of a no brainer for him. Were you surprised when the notice came in? Yeah, I was surprised because again, we, we had been, that's when we shot the, uh, the whole deal and angle with gold dust and had plenty of opportunity, had meetings with Vince, had plenty of opportunity to tell Vince face to face. So yeah, shocking. By the way, uh, $270,000 and 95 would be about $470,000 now. 
just to give a frame of reference. But I mean, that was probably the case for everybody, right? 94 was a better year in the business than 95 financially for everyone. I'd probably depend on whoever, but the business is better. Yes. Uh, there is some bitterness within the WWF for how hall handled the departure since he was on the road with the entire office crew Sunday through Tuesday, giving no indication he was leaving. He was booked prominently in both the tag team title tournament and an angles planned for a street fight against Goldust. The latter was planned to take theoretically in Miami on a downtrodden street and beamed in live via satellite as part of the WrestleMania show. Either way though, it's, uh, it's not good. When the office crew returns back after booking Ramon in a strong position for the future, they have a telegram of him giving notice a telegram. That feels like this is from the, like the 1800s or something, a telegram. Do you remember it being a telegram? Yeah, I think it was either a telegram or a certified letter or something like that. Not long after that, March 5th, 1050 AM, Kevin Nash phoned Vince McMahon to give his notice as well. We all know this would wind up leading to the WCW's boom period for the next several years, but several interviews have indicated that Nash made his decision to leave right after this in your house show. Uh, he said once in an interview with our friend, Sean Oliver over kayfabe commentaries, that there was an incident that ensured that he was going to renew his contract or he was not going to renew it. Rather, he's supposed to hit the jackknife and be set to win the match until the undertaker comes through the ring. But Nash said, Brett refused to take his finish. And Brett says, no, thinking people will feel like he was beat. And Nash says, Taker, who never says anything, jolts up out of his chair and says, motherfucker, not everything is about you. This helps our match mean more at WrestleMania. But they got there the day of, and Vince made the call that Brett was not going to take the powerbomb. But Nash says this change was the straw that broke the camel's back. Have you heard that story before? Oh, I've heard it before. You know... Look, I, I think that I think Kevin and Scott both had their minds made up, and I think Kevin had his mind made up long before that. This was just I think, an easy I think thing. it's a convenient excuse. There you go. Um, I don't know what you know what Kevin was thinking. I don't claim to be in Kevin's mind. I just think that if I were a betting man, I think that Kevin had his mind made up a long time ago. Yeah, I kind of agree because it's not like well, if Brett takes the power bomb, he's sticking around. Fuck off. Yeah. That's not real. All right, let's get to the show itself. Uh, the show got, uh, 55.4% thumbs up, 25.9% thumbs down, 18.7% thumbs in the middle. Most everyone agreed Sean and Owen were the match of the night. Uh, and it was a toss up as to what was the worst match Yoko and Davey or Jake and Tatanka. Uh, Meltzer would describe this show as basically more to build WrestleMania than standalone on its own. But Bruce in hindsight, aren't, er isn't usually most shows between the rumble and WrestleMania. They're all building to WrestleMania, right? That's kind of what promotion companies do. Yeah. I mean, that's a no brainer. Uh, Meltzer would say, while the show was generally well-received, I was in the minority on this one. Sean and Owen had an excellent match, but from a wrestling standpoint, it was a one match show. Brett and diesel's main event cage match was terrible up to the creative ending where undertaker came from under the ring to pull diesel under and allow Hart to escape the cage. As expected, Hart once again came out of the match devalued as a champion going into the biggest show of the year. The show was largely designed to set up Michael's expected win over Hart by giving Michaels a strong, clean win over an established star and the Diesel Undertaker match plus the Vader Yoko match. All three were well accomplished, but in doing so, two of the top three matches on the show itself suffered. 
I don't know, man. I disagree. Maybe that's me. There is a pre-show match. This is back in the free for all era. It's Jake Roberts getting a win over Tatanka with a DDT in five minutes and 36 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say Roberts got the big pop coming out, but his loose ring top couldn't hide that. He was terribly out of shape. He blew up fast. And judging from the comments here, a large percentage of fans noticed dud. We talked about the huge pop that he got at the Royal rumble. Here we are in our, our backup effort, our next sophomore effort, right with him. And that's another big pop, but man, he don't look like the Jake of old. When do you remember this being an issue? I mean, clearly, you know, cause you've got him a new top designed. What can you tell us about Jake here? When that goddamn bell rang, you know, it was and not being hidden by 29 other guys. Um, look, everybody knew that Jake was in no shape to go out and have matches of old. However, the attraction of Jake, the snake Roberts, I think still held water and Jake still was able to cut some of the most compelling promos in the business. Thought if we could get there and, and make Jake an attraction, um, there might be something. But putting Jake regularly in matches, not the greatest idea in the world. Talk to me about the free for all and how this is, I mean, this is important. We've got Cornette come out with Vader and they're saying, oh, he's going to be here tonight. Oh, he's going to be involved. We're going to get him on this card or something like that. But the free for all, this is like a last minute infomercial to buy the pay-per-view, right? Absolutely. It was on the, uh, TV guide channel. It was a, it was a marker channel that people on cable had. And basically it just was your channel guide. This was a television show that people that are going to their channel guide, their TV guide and looking for, uh, What's coming on at hey, what's coming on at six thirty? And you see this show. In addition, it also ran free prior to the pay-per-view itself on the pay-per-view channel. So you saw this, it was free, and hopefully it was one last ditch effort to let you know you got one last chance to buy the pay-per-view live. Now we're on to the pay-per-view itself. For the past several months, Razor and the one, two, three kid have been involved in a slow burn feud that began with the two as friends, but then a rocky relationship after kid lost a match for the two against the smoking guns before long, one, two, three kid is the full fledged heel and he joins the million dollar corporation. So now we got to end this bitter feud somehow. Why not a baby bottle match? So Razor pins the one, two, three kid here in 12 minutes and one second. In a baby bottle match, kid comes out with a stroller and a Ramon teddy bear. Meltzer would say kid looks smaller than normal in the 180 pound range. Even with the size difference, they had a good match. Ted DiBiase threw baby powder in Ramon's eyes to give kid an advantage. Kid used a lengthy sleeper, which neither Ramon nor the announcers had a clue how to effectively sell and went over the head of most of the crowd as well. Finally, Ramon broke the hole by crotching kid on the ropes. They went to several near falls before DiBiase distracted the ref and threw baby through the baby bottle to kid kid poured the powder in his hands. But when Ramon turned around, he kicked kid in the hands and the powder went into kids own eyes. Razor then used the razor's edge and finished the pin on kid, but did so after a second one. And then Ramon put the baby bottle in kid's mouth through powder in DiBiase's eyes. Put a diaper on kid and poured baby powder all over him. When kid revived in the ring, he started crying three stars. Bruce, you know, you make fun of what they did in ECW all the time. And you even make fun of the shit they did in Memphis 
but this is more Memphis than Memphis and ECW ever were. What the fuck was this? Who booked this shit? This is highly entertaining. Got three stars from the little bitch boy in California. Buddy. And by the way, 180 pounds for one, two, three kid. Is he making reference to how huge kids kid looked or what? Help me understand. I'm trying. I I don't understand what that reference is about either. Is it? But it was an entertainment match. It was an entertaining thing. Being a crybaby and you're gonna you're gonna act like a crybaby. You're gonna treat you like a crybaby. Gonna give you a baby bottle, make you suck on the baby bottle, put you in a baby bonnet, and powder your little bottom and give you a diaper. Is this brought to us by the same creative genius who did dog food? Strong dog food. I'm just saying. Baby bottle. Seriously. If this was anywhere else, if, if they were running a, a baby bottle match on another promotion right now, you would be shitting on it left and right. Not if it was done. Well, you thought this was done well. Yeah, I did. Uh, you didn't think it was done well. I just, listen, I love the performers. I think they are very capable of having a great match, but my God, this diaper shit in a bottle. Make a big deal out of goddamn baby powder. What fucking other kind of powder are you going to use in a goddamn baby bonnet, baby diaper match? <laughs> we don't need to have the match is the point. Oh, so you didn't want us to have a match. Okay. Not about a regular one. You know, hey, these guys are heated. I'm they're, pretty they're, sure this had escalated into a goddamn baby bottle match. I really hope. That there is a baby bottle match this year on WrestleMania. Fuck the hell in the cells and the last man standings. Everybody knows you're going to blow a feud off. Get that goddamn diaper out. Well, yeah, and we did. <laughs> you're welcome. Oh, I love when you're cantankerous just for the sake of being so in hindsight, you book razor with gold dust. He's not happy with that. You pivot, you put him in a baby bottle match. Is it really that much of a shock he's putting in his notice? Well, I guess he missed that uh, backlot brawl. Up next, a feud that's been. Let's talk about another pay per view quality match Duke the Dumpster, Drossy, and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. They wrestled at the Royal Rumble preview show for the number 30 spot. Drossy wound up winning. And now he's, he's got his head shaved. He's doing a pre match interview. He totally botches the promo. He skips over Todd Pettengill and says his entire spiel before basically running out of stuff to say and having to repeat it. One of the worst promos you'll see Hunter pins Duke in nine minutes and 38 seconds. Wow. What'd you think? Ooh, is rough. Not that good. Not that good at all. Meltzer would say Helmsley is improving and the match was significantly better than the rumble match after power slam Duke used his new finishing maneuver called the trash compactor, which is a spinning power slam. He left the ring to get the garbage can. He threw the lid in the ring and accidentally hit Helmsley in the mouth and apparently split his lip open. And then he tried to bring the can in the ref stopped him and Helmsley got the lid hit uh, Duke with it. And there's your pin star and a half. So listen, he's, he's yeah, got himself wasn't that great. Yeah, this is it for him when prime time, is it not? Yeah, it just was. It just was sloppy and plotting and 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 waiting for shit. It just wasn't comfortable to watch. wasn't good. Yeah, it's less than good. Um, he's going to leave the company in the summer of '96. 
I think his last televised match was a loss to TL Hopper at July. So that tells you where your life is. If you're losing to TL Hopper, you're not long for this world. So TL Hopper. Well, he's just a job guy. I mean, I like him. Great he's not a job guy. He, well, he, wins. he, he won. <laughs> he beat, he beat him. But the yeah. point is, sure okay. that's what it is. So he's not just a job guy. It's TL Hopper. He's goddamn plumber by trade. What about Salvatore sincere? His top. Draw. He was sincere by trade. Yokozuna is going to go ahead and get a win over Davy boy here by DQ in five Oh five. When Jim Cornette hits Yoko with the tennis racket three times, uh, Smith did about as good as one can do. Given Yoko has no conditioning and can no longer do a singles match. Now as a face, Yoko spoke for the first time and Mr. Fuji seems to have disappeared, I guess. So nobody else can win his award. Yokozuna didn't sell any of the racket shots and stalked Cornette until Vader came running in Vader and Smith did a double team on Yoko with Vader, finally putting the uh, handcuffs on and cuffing Yoko to the corner. The two continued to beat on Yoko. He made several comes back comebacks before being beaten down. And then all the agents, including for the first time on a pay-per-view, the former George Steele came out and the noted Clint, uh, Clarence Mason ran in to break things up. I mean, I guess this is okay. We're definitely trying to build towards Yoko and Vader here, but I would have liked to have seen Davey have a different opponent here. Maybe Davey no. and Hunter could have had a match. My goodness. Yeah, it's pretty fucking awful. And it was just sad, you know, at this point to see Yoko and see what kind of shape he was in and, and just unable to move. And it, and it just, yeah. I mean, you can work around and do as much as you want to do all around him, but it still was painful to watch. What do you think in hindsight, if Yoko could have dropped the weight, would he have been a big baby face? Would that have worked? I think, yeah. I mean, if you could have got the Yoko of old without a doubt, the Yoko of old could have been a hell of a baby face for the company. All right. If you're going to watch one match on this show, it should probably be the next one. Sean versus Owen. Their feud started back in the fall of 95. Of course, Sean Michaels took a hiatus from wrestling due to that injury after the real life attack in Syracuse. They talked about it on air, but then Owen Hart hit that enziguri. Sean Michaels kayfabe blacked out. He's going to tease retirement, but announce he's in the rumble. He wins the rumble and Owen is still taunting Michaels, taking credit for the injury. And now we have a match here and Michaels even puts up his title opportunity. So if you can beat me, you can have my shot at the title at WrestleMania. They get plenty of time too. 15 minutes and 57 seconds. Sean gets the win. Uh, Michaels is going to dance on the roof of the in your house set and use a rope to come down, uh, for his ring entrance. This is sort of a precursor for WrestleMania 12 with that entrance, huh? No, it was just a little baby one, a little baby one, little baby one. Uh, Meltzer would say the two had the expected excellent match, although nowhere close to the Bret Hart Davy boy match in December. Michaels in the early moments did a twisting plancha off the top rope onto the floor. Lots of really cool stuff here. Eventually Owen hits that enziguri, which is the key storyline point, And it knocks Shawn Michaels to the floor. Hart then brings Michaels back in, but Sean kicks out. Of course we see Sean go for the super kick, but miss. And then Owen goes for the enziguri and miss. And finally Sean hits the super kick. And that's all she wrote four stars. Pretty good match here. Two of the best in the world at this point. Owen is still probably underrated here, but man, if you're trying to get somebody ready, and show them what they can do as a top guy. Is there a better opponent than Owen Hart? Motherfucker, Owen Hart was just so great at everything he did. And I, and effortless. 
it was it was effortless on Owen's part. Owen knew where to be, when to be there, and was able to tell a great story in any situation that you put him in. And this was a prime example. Owen knew what he was out there to do. Owen was out there to make Sean look like the guy that could be the next champion. And in that, made Owen Hart. Sean was out there to make Owen Hart so that he beat somebody. And it was just a clinic of anybody that wants to go back and learn why why do guys do the things they do in the ring? And why do they make so, some things make sense and why some things don't make sense? This would be a match to go back and watch and say, holy shit, these two guys, when we call it dancing, made beautiful music together. It's a cool visual too. Just, you know, Sean on the top of the roof. I mean, he has a big star presence here. What, how did I, we know how Owen and Brett got along, obviously his brothers. And we know the, the storyline and the real life situation being different, but we also know that at different times, Brett and Sean got along other times. It was just a professional rivalry. Other times they just fucking hated each other. What was Owen and Sean's relationship like? Everybody liked Owen, first of all. So it was kind of hard to not like Owen and and be adversarial in any way, shape or form. And I think that Owen worked, Owen didn't, I was going to say Owen worked hard to have good relationships, but he really didn't. He just had to be himself in so many ways. Uh, Owen was professional. I think that Owen would, um, as far as family, Owen's going to back up family and, and stand behind them. But at the same time, when it's time to do business, Owen's going to do business and do what's right for business. That's the kind of person that he was. So, um, pretty straightforward. I think they had a, they had a good relationship as good as it could possibly be. They were professional. And it's logical in storyline that on Brett's way to winning the world title at WrestleMania 10, he lost to Owen. Well, now here, Sean beats Owen. Uh, now it's time for our main event of the evening. It's a match that we've seen on pay-per-view a lot. It's diesel versus Brett. It happened at the King of the ring in 94, the Royal rumble in 95, and even survivor series 95, uh, diesel won the first match by DQ. The second match was a no contest. The third match, Brett won, but at the rumble 96, Brett and the undertaker's match is interrupted by diesel. So gorilla monsoon announces he's putting Brett and diesel in a 15 foot high steel cage. I like these old blue cages. This is one of the last appearances we would see. We would only see it a handful more times. I think probably SummerSlam 97 might've been the last, or maybe they did it once more after WrestleMania 14. Either way though, the old classic blue cage, you had a, a nickname for it. And I think Briscoe had it for years at his body shop, right? Yeah. Old blue It is fucking horrible. A little snug, <laughs> little snug, not, not as snug as the elimination chamber, but fucking snug. Well, the match itself here gets plenty of time. It's in a cage. Remember the name of the show is in your house. Six rage in the cage. They go 1913. Um, Meltzer would say live. He was told diesel was about 70% of the cheers, but a lot of it was attributed to the USWA television show that aired this weekend where Hart was doing several heel interviews for his match in Memphis with Jerry Lawler. Uh, Meltzer would say, I don't think the portrayal of Hart as a guy who was lucky to be champion and doesn't really deserve it in this day and age helps. With the exception of the Smith match in December, which was the perfect match to get the champion over and the belt Hart lurked into the belt or lucked into the belt in a match. Diesel should have won, but was too nice of a guy 
And then undertaker should have beaten him twice, but diesel saved his ass both times, which is the last thing fans want to see involving a babyface champion against a popular challenger because the natural reaction to begin with is you want to see a title change. Brett's been pretty vocal about this too, that he didn't like the booking on the way to WrestleMania 12. He felt like you did him no favors between winning it at survivor series and WrestleMania. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, I think that first of all, I thought that it was a good story and you were using Brett to tell another story with undertaker and diesel. You were using Sean over here. And the idea was Brett was going away after WrestleMania 12. Um, not everybody knew that, but Brett was going away. We didn't know how long Brett was going to go away. We didn't know if it was going to be three months or six months or, or what it would be. So on the way there, you needed to use Brett to tell these other stories. Right. So how much do you really want to invest to make Brett an unstoppable champion? If he's going away after the big show and you have to start building new people. So I'll defend the the creative all day long because again, we had to build to what we knew that we were going to have when we're done with WrestleMania 12. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. Talking about the match. Meltzer would say anyway, the first 15 minutes of the match were boring as diesel was just so limited and what he can do in a match where the object is to climb and he's not climbing. Even forgetting the confines of the match, Diesel looked slow and unimpressive and heart lacked fire. It picked up in the last few minutes and had a great finish. As Diesel was about to go out the door to win, Undertaker came from under the ring and grabbed his foot and dragged him under the ring. And special effects of smoke under the ring went through the ring canvas. Hart then escaped the cage to win, but come out of the show once again as a second tier star underneath Undertaker, Diesel, Michaels, and Vader. Diesel then climbed back from under the ring with his pants torn and climbed the cage, quote unquote, running away from undertaker to show he was afraid of him. Ironically, after largely being cheered during the match, diesel was almost 100% booed afterwards star and a half. So I think the booing is really more indicative of they love the undertaker more than they love diesel. That's okay. I mean, he's more established and more the legacy character. What'd you think of the finish and, and what do you think of the, uh, the idea that, Hey, this isn't the right kind of match for diesel. Cause he's not going to be climbing. Well, again, it was, you can go through the door a lot of different ways to do it. And I thought that the match was a good match. Actually, you go back and watch it and it's a decent match. They were telling a story. And when you get to that story at the end, it was to get to the story of undertaker. Now is going to fucking, keep this one from diesel. That was the story of this match. And you know, the the thing that we didn't do that was actually Kevin Nash's idea that I so badly wanted to do. And I actually remember going back to Vince and, and making a second pitch at it going, God, I know this sounds crazy, but I think it'd really be good is that once Undertaker pulled Diesel into the hole and got Diesel uh, underneath in the hole, that when Diesel reappeared, that he had a gray streak in his hair. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so fucking great. 
And I think that it was ruled that it would be too hokey and like, hang on, man. We're cutting a yeah. hole in the middle of the ring, pulling the guy into the depths of hell. All this smoke billows out and all this shit like they just opened the door to mine in Briscoe's room at fucking two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and the fucking goddamn guy coming out with a gray streak is too fucking hokey. Um, I just thought that would have been cool and it would have added to it a little bit and and we didn't do it, obviously, but I do think that would have been a nice, fun addition. But to get to the stories, to tell all of the stories that we wanted to tell at the end of the day, I thought it did a magnificent job of it. Do you think they borrowed that idea a little bit in TNA when they did the broken Matt Hardy thing? He just randomly had the gray streak. So I didn't see that, but maybe. Maybe. Yeah, well, no, I have no idea because I didn't see it. That's back when you would make me watch things that just oh, like and, and you, you would you would fucking kidnap me in your living room and make me watch shit randomly. Well, and that was one of you gonna act like that wasn't entertaining. Sometimes it was. Sometimes it's fucking brutal. I, I just wanted to go upstairs to my wing. I, you you're know, mean he, to me. You kidnapped you kidnapped me. You're, you're and then and then like when I had and by the way by the way you took the you you took away my access on your Sonos and all that other shit I I got rid I got rid of the whole goddamn little box where I had all the Conrad house house apps Are you serious? Because you just discontinued all my passwords and shit. That's not true. It is too true. Well, here's the deal: you better not be trying to turn on lights and shit from up at your house at my house. That's <laughs> dirty. I didn't. End up. Well, I did it, and then you got mad. And you like took my password away from me. I don't remember doing that. I don't think this match sucked as bad as everybody else does. But do you think Nash's heart just wasn't in it? I do. I do think his heart wasn't in it because he knew he was leaving. When you think about cage matches, did the WWF just fuck it all up with this escape to win thing? Or did you think it added suspense? That's not the WWF man. That's, you know, and again, it's first of all, it's, it's the Sheik and Bruno. And it was shit that they used to do in uh, Detroit and Toronto. And then Vince senior did it so that Bruno wouldn't have to do a job. Okay. Um, and then it just became the norm. So yes, to me in the South, a cage match was the blow off. That was the definitive nobody in, nobody out. And only Anderson fucked it up by putting the top on the goddamn cage. Nobody in, nobody out. They can't even climb over the top and then raise the fucking cage in the middle of the goddamn, uh, match. So only fucked up the cage, uh, the Southern cage, uh, worse than anybody. And then all bets were off and fucking just cages become a prop. What'd you think of Roddy Piper's interview on the show? They're interviewing him as they're setting up the cage and he's just flying off the cuff. He's pinching Cornette in the butt. He's saying of the Yokozuna Vader match at WrestleMania, let the blood flow. Uh, and throughout the segment, Vince just keeps saying there's only one Roddy Piper. There's only one Roddy Piper. Is he well, just- Cause there's only one Roddy Piper. <laughs> there was, he was reiterating it. Oh, there's only one Piper. Pretty crazy. And then from there. Oh, go ahead. oh, wow. One, two. He got it. No, he didn't. Oh, no. One, two. He got it. Oh, no. 
Piper had one of the more interesting 96s of anyone. He's going to be in WrestleMania against Goldust. He's even got a main event Starcade against Hogan. It's pretty crazy to think about what all he accomplished here. And Meltzer would say with the exception of possibly Michaels, it appeared the most over performer on the show was Roddy Piper. Was that always the case? You just knew, Hey man, Scott Hall don't want to do it. Let's go over here and break this glass in case of emergency. Get us a Piper. We'll be fine. There was a time that that worked. And then there was a time that that ran its course. Um, bless his heart. This was definitely one of those times that I felt plugging Roddy in was the right thing to do. By the way, that wasn't the end of the show. That is what you finished on pay-per-view. If you got the Coliseum video release, you got more. And of course, if you were in the crowd, you got more. Ahmed Johnson would <coughs> pin Isaac Yankum DDS in a pretty bad match. Surprise. Jeff Jarrett was supposed to be there, but he's hurt. And if I was Jeff, I would probably claim I was hurt to stay out of the ring with Ahmed too. Next up, we get the Godwins pinning the uh, body Donna's. It was reported to be a pretty good match. And then undertaker working with gold dust. And it was a count out win for the undertaker. So Goldust keeps the intercontinental title. Meltzer would say he heard this match was pretty bad. Undertaker Goldust. That's an interesting thing. That's like out of a time capsule right there. Oof. Yeah. I can only imagine, especially after that night. Let's wrap things up here after the pay-per-view ended, but a segment that was taped that'll probably air on the syndicated shows. Jake Roberts did an interview talking about the years where he was addicted to alcohol and cocaine, but he's back in wrestling to glorify the Lord. And he also said his snake is no longer named Damien, but now revelations. So talk to me a little bit about the presentation here and why it made sense to get a, a fresh paint of coat out for Jake. Well, because I think that most people <laughs> kind of saw Jake in, in that one way. And it was an opportunity, you know, from Jake's point of view that Jake felt very strongly about, or at least outwardly uh, felt strongly about wanting to get that message out. So we wanted to try it. You know, we don't like doing politics and religion. In this case, it was a, it was a message of, hey, kids, don't do drugs. Look what can happen to you. Um, and Jake, you know, wanting to do a, a positive spin on things and be able to utilize Jake to be the guy that goes out and, and later on we had, uh, what we called, a a, a no BS tour, uh, that you would take guys like Bradshaw and Farouk and, and different guys that had lived, lived a hard life, made mistakes and go out and give kids the the no bullshit message. This was the precursor to the, that. And this was Jake going out and telling his story of, hey, man, I was a drug addict and I was an alcoholic. And you can't get your life back on track. So that was the idea behind it. Let's do some questions here. We got lots of questions about this show. One of them that I want to ask before we get to all the fan questions it feels like given the fact that you, this Owen Enziguri putting Sean on the shelf was so memorable in 95 that perhaps you could have saved this Owen Sean match for post WrestleMania and gotten a main event out of it where Owen could say, yeah, not only did I kick your head into the third row, I knocked you unconscious and I'm going to do it and put you on the shelf and claim my world title this Sunday at so-and-so pay-per-view instead we do it right before 
could that have worked or did the company at that point just not see Owen as a pay-per-view main event? Well, again, I think that he, it was here with Sean and it was an opportunity to get us to that point. That's what the story was. And it was Owen and we needed to finish that up before we got to WrestleMania. Lots of questions about the little girl in the ring. Uh, she's here celebrating with Shawn Michaels. Sean's asking for some kisses. Uh, how are the, the kids who were involved in the scenes in the ring selected? Is it usually someone they knew or the boys just call an audible and go do it? It would depend. Sometimes it would be somebody that they knew and a lot of times I have no idea who the hell this was, but a lot of times it was someone that they knew. Lenny Bakken wants to know, was the decision made to hold this event in Louisville made to accommodate Jim Cornette's dislike for travel? Yeah, 100%. Except, see, Lenny, the whole in that story is, is that Jimmy was still living in Connecticut. You know, he had to be stomping around. What a goddamn rib. Goddamn, where's mama? The mama's here. Dan wants to know, is the big blue cage in the warehouse somewhere? Uh, have you thought about cutting it into pieces and selling it? Or did Conrad already buy it? No, I don't uh, have it. I'd like to cut it into pieces, wherever the hell it is. Burn it. Just melt it all down and then make like a necklace, like uh common Mustafa's. <laughs> uh, Michael says, maybe I'm just old school, but this version of the steel cage is still my favorite. Uh, why Bruce was this changed many times over the years. The style I feel like I like the best is because it was easiest for viewers to see through. What say you? Well, Michael, you never had to work in the damn thing. That's what I say. Okay. It was painful. It is easier to see though. He's onto something there. Okay. <laughs> Craig says, Hey guys, this is a question for both of you. Do you think in 95 razor Ramon could have been a credible heel going for the WWE championship against diesel, a razor Ramon, uh, a heel razor Ramon would have been a great storyline. Of course he started as a heel, but I mean, do you think it could have worked razor and diesel for the title? Well, then everybody would have bitched about the click working together. Well, we're going to do that. No we matter what. can't do that. But I mean, you, you did that a lot with Sean and, and, and Nash. So why not them? You just want to argue today. I can tell. Well, you woke me up so goddamn early. I hate you for that. Uh, Meltzer would say, <laughs> just like fired you up. We're done with that. Scott Steele says all the two hour. Check me up, Conrad. What's your next question? I don't have one, but Scott Stessel does. He says, okay. Uh, all the two hour in your house pay-per-views had dark matches after the show. I went to the buried alive in Indianapolis. I remember the new rockers versus the Godwins, uh, while Sean Michaels closed with gold dust. What's fabulous about that buried alive is we're, we're led to believe that we have just witnessed a real murder. A man has been buried here. He's dead. No murder. Well, he's no buried. Murder. Okay. He's buried alive. Yeah. Okay. We just saw a man buried alive. Yeah. Next up the Godwins. <laughs> yeah. Run to the ring. Don't go mess with country boy, country boy, country boy. Don't go mess with country boy. Don't mess with country boy. Pete wants to know what would have been the long-term plans for diesel and razor had they not given their notice. So you had something penciled in, right? Well, diesel would have gone with undertaker. Yeah. That still happened. We got that. What? Yeah. But, when, you, but it would have gone on. It would have gone on through the summer and would have continued on. Razor would have worked with gold dust. What would he have done on the other side of WrestleMania? Do you think? Don't really remember because, uh, you know, once we knew that that was 
not going to happen. His unhappiness with gold dust and working with gold dust. And you're thinking in different ways like, okay, well, this isn't going to work moving forward. Couldn't tell you on the money says the opening intro for this show is one of the best they ever did. The music, the score, the narrator's voice. It was simple and effective. One of my favorite in your house pay-per-views who was doing these video packages back here. Was this still Sahadi? Um, probably Sahadi, Chris chambers. One of those two, probably. Uh, Alexa wants to know whatever happened to the old in your house stage set. Is it tucked away in the warehouse or was it completely scrapped and thrown out as best, you know, it's, uh, Conrad's garage. Why are you saying that? That's not true because show them pictures uh, where you pull, where you pull the rolls into. What are you, why are you being like this? Where's the set? Did and they you turn park it next to the Bugatti. Bugatti. Oh, you're adding new shit now. Does Vince have a Bugatti? Oh, see, see, you don't deny the rolls. You don't deny the other shit, the Bentley. And just cause I threw a Bugatti in there. Oh, well, I don't have a Bugatti yet. I don't it's have, not here yet. I don't have a Bentley anymore. Okay. Austin says to the best of your knowledge, has Sean ever landed his super kick on anyone? Now he's not saying that to be a smart ass, but has it ever connected a little too much? Oh yeah. Plenty of times. Sometimes you just got to get in there a little snuggo. Uh, super spreader event says the rumor had it that the, uh, diaper match was Jim Cornette's idea and X-Pac wanted out of his contract as a result. Do you remember that does feel like a Cornette thing? I could see that happening in Smoky Mountain. Do you I'm remember? Sure, it was a Cornette thing. Okay. Do you remember X Pac being upset about a baby bottle match, or was he cool? Ah, uh, he might have been a little upset about it. But again, I liked it. I thought it was a really good uh, culmination to their entire issue. Uh, Marcus says creatively, if you had a do over with Chris Candido, would you have done anything differently? Of course, he's in the dark match here, but. We get lots of questions about Candido. Do you think he was just ahead of his time? Maybe the business wasn't ready for a guy, his height being featured. I mean, I know, don't take this the wrong way. I mean, but if, if Chris were six inches taller yeah. and 40 pounds heavier, then, you know, he would have owned the business. I just think that, you know, due to his size and, and, and somewhat, you know, a little bit, his attitude, um, you know, Chris had a chip on his shoulder and had a strong desire to to be the best. And instead of trying to work around going, okay, how can I be the best in this environment? It was like, no, fuck you. You're all wrong because you're not letting me be the best, you know, where I want to be the best. So it just, um, I don't know. It, it, it uh, I like Chris. I think Chris was a hell of a talent, but I just think that more than anything, if you were to look at what held Chris back was his size. And that's a shame because he really had a love for this business. And in Chris's mind, he was seven feet tall and that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a, you know, uh, Wayne says, what do wrestlers do when they have to spend the entire night under the ring waiting for their spot? Depends on the wrestler. Most sleep. What do you think Undertaker was doing? Seances? Yeah, probably. Had a Ouija board. (laughs) I don't know why that tickles me, but it does. Hey, one last one, then we'll get out of here. Um, This is from Steve Hates Wrestling. He says, why did the heel Tatanka not work out? 
I thought his heel turn on Luger was really well done and one of the better heel turns of the mid nineties. What say you? Okay, you're gonna get this. All right. When Tataka turned heel and went into the whole Do you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Okay, don't get hot because I couldn't hear me. So I'm getting hot at you because I can't hear me. This <laughs> par for course. I get it. So ah, damn clouds. Okay. Um when Tataka turned heel and went with the million dollar man, I remember his his first promo when we went through all of these things that, you know, before Tataka, you know, bought his pants at the gap and this and that and all this other thing and you know said so now you're wearing ferragamos and blah 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 and and then he he goes through the whole promo and everything that he mentioned about now that i'm with the million dollar man i've i've got levi jeans and 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 i'm buying my shoes at floor shine and i swear to god in my head and in that moment that he was dead when he said he bought his shoes at Florsheim that was in every single mall in America that was, you know, the cheap shoes, the, or, and I came back and said, Florsheim? He goes, yeah, they got nice shoes there. I said, I gave you Ferragamos and fucking Gucci and uh, all this shit. He goes, yeah, but you know, I mean, most people, you know, they 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 see the floor shine, they know they're they're you know they're they're nice shoes. Bless his heart, I love me some Chris. And the thing about it was, was Chris was a snazzy dresser, right? And Chris always had nice shit, but the floor shine shoe just still to me to this day sticks in my craw. Well, hopefully next week won't stick in your crawl, but I think it might. You're probably going to be upset with me because we're covering the main event from 1991. It's February 1st. We're going to see Sergeant Slaughter and, uh, we're going to hear from him and we'll probably have a little I to talk. I think I'm busy. I think I'm busy. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that one. Well, the following week, it'll be Trish Stratus. Then we're going to cover Saturday night's main event from 06, then undertaker 98, 99, then WrestleMania 12, lots of good stuff coming your way. Don't forget you get all these shows early and ad free here on adfreeshows.com. Bruce, do you want to put a bow on this episode for us? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. What do you give in your house? Number six. It was a fast moving two hours by God. And I thought that it was fun show to watch and revisit. Yeah. I think I say thumbs up. I, I like it. And I think you should go out of your way to watch that Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels match, two of the all time greats. I still think it could have been a main event on a pay-per-view, but we'll debate it another time. Next week, it's main event number five from February 1991, right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.